Welcome to Don't Say NFT, the show where we don't say NFT. I'm Danny Clutterbuck, and I'll be your host. GM. GM, everybody. I remember talking about GM in depth a few episodes, and now my GMs mean a totally different thing. I don't know if anybody else was here for that episode, but uh, I used to think that GM was just like not worth doing. And I like I used to be the moderator or a moderator at a Discord channel for this later one um, that most people would just GM in once and then leave the server. And I was like, I'm I'm over this. I don't think that GMs make any sense. So I banned GMs. And if you just said GM with nothing else attached to it, it wasn't like GM Happy Friday, GM I have a question, GM something. Um, it was like, get out of here. You're not, it would just bounce you and you would still be able to talk, but it would bounce that message. And so we just, then it was just dead in there. And two years later, I was like, oh, GM is a head nod. GM is not a question. It's not an answer. It doesn't expect anything of everyone. It's simply a statement that I am here. And that is a really important sentiment when we don't know where we are or who else is there with us. We say GM, we go, is anybody else going to, you know, is anybody else here with us? So GM, Big God, GM, Prism, GM, everybody who's not yet on stage who might be at some point today. I suppose we should get it rolling. Welcome to Don't Say NFT, the show where we sometimes don't say NFT for a little while until halfway through the show. Uh, my name is Donnie Clutterbuck, and I'll be your host today. Thank you to Crypto Sapiens for producing this and to Bankless Dow for the ongoing support. This episode's on provenance, and it's a word that I didn't know existed until I came into the ordinal space. And I don't know if anybody else is afflicted with that, but it's a word that I had to try to figure out what it's okay. When I first heard people using it, contextually, I assumed that this was a word that meant maybe like place in time. And I guess it sort of does mean that, but I think I had a bit of a more reductive version of that in my head, like provenance did is it on an uncommon sat then you made it there that's what it is and it's your thing and you are now attached to this one block in a way that no other thing is attached to and while that is a part of what provenance means provenance refers in the art world and archaeology world to an item's complete journey the entire from genesis all the way till right now um, where it has been who made it why they made it, what the historical and cultural subtext was during the creation process and throughout the rest of its life, and maybe what the subject of the painting or the use of the items was. And up until now, that kind of thing has required recording. And we know how unreliable humans are. Like if you've ever told a person a story and then heard that person tell the same story the next day, it's not even the same story. And that's 24 hours, right? So like consider in the, in terms of like art, long-term art storage and sales and uh, archaeological digs and how things get put together over the course of time, the thing you say doesn't enter the brains, the brain of the person who's hearing it the same way you say it. It enters it the way they think you said it. And then it leaves their mouth the way they think they're saying it. But it enters someone else's ears the way that that person thinks the other person is saying it. There's so many levels of incomplete tracing that we are hoping or thinking or probably quite sure that blockchain can solve for us. So I wanted to break up two terms first and lean into that while we go around the room and talk about what provenance means in terms of what we're doing here. Uh, but I wanted to say that I learned a new term. It wasn't provenance, it's provenience. Does anybody know that word already? 
I've never, I've never heard of it. Yeah, provenience is spelled like convenience, but with the beginning of provenance, sort of. And provenience refers to when you dig something up, like say you're on an archaeological dig, and you find a clay pot or so, something you've never, something you can't even identify. You find it next to a pyramid somewhere. Uh, recording that item is now starting at an incomplete provenance is its provenience. You're recognizing that you don't know the genesis, you don't know the creator, you don't know the intended purpose, but you do know you found it here. And now you're starting to think about it. That's provenience. Probably the reason we don't know this word in this space is because it doesn't exist in this space because we can't lose track of items. All we can do is lose control of them. Um, it's, a, it's a uniquely solved problem that we haven't even acknowledged. Well, maybe we've acknowledged that we've solved, but we haven't really had to think about it because this word isn't really a word uh, where we come from. So some things I wanted to go through today were what is provenance via art and archaeology? Uh, what are these blockchain solutions that we're seeing and which ones are the most exciting to you? Why do you care about art on Bitcoin? Um, no, sorry, on blockchain. What is unique to Bitcoin specifically that makes this such a great medium for that? And the original actual reason for this episode was sat and block provenance and all the vectors you can draw through the individual ways that you can value items on the Bitcoin blockchain. And what those are, why why they matter, why uncommons matter, why black sats matter, why it matters that we can identify what sats paid for a pizza in the world's most expensive pizza transaction that ever occurred and may ever. And I guess we can start with anybody who wants. You can raise your hand if you have something to say, but otherwise I'm going to default to the order on my screen. And the first up is Bitcoin. Welcome here. What did you have for breakfast? And what is your TLDR on provenance? Why does it matter? why it matters actually let me go to the, the breakfast piece first i you know i only had coffee this morning i'm feeling a bit under the weather um it's not it's not covid though i did get a test so i'm feeling fortunate with that i think what's really interesting i'll just say before i go into the the, the provenance piece i've been having a lot of calls and and i'm sure like prism and and maybe some others um with you know the collector side of things um after we've secured really our 21 uh curated artists on the quadrillion side um for for that drop coming up um it's still incredibly hard to to onboard people like i think we still don't have enough resources and i'm i'm literally talking about like i'm doing a live onboarding like while while this space is going on going back and forth in the dms with a collector who reached out um, just wondering about some of the basics. Um, and I, I just put out a tweet as well about that because I'm not necessarily surprised, but I, I feel like I have to almost put more personal touch into this onboarding that takes a little bit more, but it's not sort of like standardized yet. And then you also have on the artist side, I have an artist that's also sort of DMing me, like that's really, you know, that's sort of English or native English speaking, um, and is having a lot of trouble figuring out how to upload their work to Gamma and get a collection sort of going on Gamma. And so I feel like there's still a big hurdle we have to get through on the onboarding side, maybe more so than the provenance side. Because I feel like the provenance is sort of there, right? Like we know inscription zero, but to get, you know, someone's valuable art on inscription 30 million two hundred and fifty one thousand is still um is still really difficult 
I guess to your question though on provenance, I think why to me matters um, is because I think as as a collector, you want to one know I think something is really authentic, but also two that um, there's a story behind something, right? There's a narrative. Um, more than just what you know this piece is about and i think um you look at really traditional art and some of the stories of you know some of these monster sales of of you know some of the different provenance papers um whatever it is you know usually um are tattered and, and broken because of how old they are but um I think having that as a part of the story of like who owned it previously, um, you know, what it was originally sort of purchased for or what it, what it was originally commissioned for, like all of these things I think really do matter. Um, and that's why I believe, you know, really provenance as a part of that matters as well. So what, what I'm hearing is that first of all, um, onboarding is clearly none of this matters unless people are using it. It's definitely very difficult. Like, like I would urge people here to go through the gamma process. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm not throwing any at gamma, but if an artist can't do it without my help, um, I feel like that's a problem, right? Um, so I, I, you know, and I could obviously do an inscription really easy for this person. Um, but again, like that's not them learning it. That's not, um, you know, like you don't want to be sort of like handholding adults. So that's just my, that's just my thoughts there. But yeah, I, I think that like without onboarding, um, the provenance of something is still very difficult as, as a sort of pitch. It's funny that it feels to me sort of like the, the, the provenance piece might be the part of the piece that means that makes them want to onboard strangely enough, right? Like this, the ability to have what you've made, unlosable like you can't that's not a word you know what i mean you can't lose it it can't be falsified it can't be changed uh it can't be stored improperly it can be displayed in any single way you want it to be it sounds like like it solves all the problems that most artists would have with shipping large pieces or proving that it's the right piece or with all the annoying stuff that makes all the creative stuff like a lot less fun it seems like all these problems are solved but no one will know that until everyone else starts doing it and this is the age-old problem of like, how do you get a job in the restaurant industry if you've never had a job in the restaurant industry? So when you go to the interview, you're like, I want to be a bartender. Then you go, where have you bartended before? And you're like, I haven't. And they go, okay, you can't have a job then. So if you always need a bartending job to get a bartending job, you'll never get one. There have to be those first few breakthrough, breakthrough people who prove the process. And I think we're just waiting on that to happen because clearly what has been built here does solve those problems and, and many more. And it actually adds a whole bunch of layers of like, fun extracurricular stuff that we really don't need uh but, but it's nice to have prism what's up man i think big god's absolutely right the tools we see a lot uh a lot of being built on the front end the inscription is i mean th throughout what an artist would um would typically do to get a collection live anywhere on any other chain the inscription is the easiest part right like you you know once they actually figure it out he you know he's he's absolutely right like actually doing your first one um, is uh, is a little bit of a process, 
But once you get that inscription on chain, that's where the challenge really starts. You know, what do you do from there? Um, you look at the the uh, mar- the bigger marketplaces. Um, typically, from there, you're relying on on their services to do that. Um, you've got to list on secondary or be approved to to actually launch a collection. And so, uh, and then we see a lot of you know launch pads being brought up where it's strictly the inscription, and then you've got to figure it out from there. So the process is very remedial at this point. You know, to to me, provenance. It's it's especially important here uh, in ordinals because of the way ordinals have been structured. Uh, provenance to me is a moment in time, and it's the situation around that moment. It's not just it's not just a number um, or you know something specific that you can look at, but what was going on around you know during that time around that situation, uh, all of those things, and so it can mean a, a different things, right? Like um, you know, to me, the the best provenance is. I mean, the the reason why provenance is so important is because we're going, we're counting up, we're counting up from zero, um, and so you can clearly see, you know, the longevity of of projects that have been here or when they started and and all of those things, which is a little bit more clouded when you go to other chains, and I think that's a really important number. But what was also going on around that time? How does this provenance stack up against the other things that were happening around that time? For an artist, provenance can again mean mean different things it, it can be this first piece which is you know a one of one and you know it's just this incredible historic piece um and it had this big sale or or maybe it didn't maybe it took a long time um like that's that's all part of the provenance or it could be you know coming in with you know additions and making a splash and getting a collector base and like that's also a different type of of provenance or start to their journey here so I think it can mean a lot of things, but to me, just in general, um, it's it's what it's, it's a moment in time. Um, how did you how did you start? How did you enter? Uh, what was going on around that time, and and then how it was received? Um, you know, it, I think it means many different things. It's yeah, provenance refers to the complete picture. That's something I think we um, I don't know if we gloss over a lot, but I don't think I've heard a lot of speech about that about like. We talk about provenance, we use the word, we don't really digest what it means. And I think the funny part about this, and I, I just came up with this last night, so maybe I'm wrong. Um, but again, these, this podcast is an exploration. It's not a tirade. It's not uh, It's not programmed in any way. So I'm going to say it. And if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. And if you think I'm right, then we can talk about why that might be. But I think Bitcoin is provenance in and of itself. It's not just a record, but it is its own. Bitcoin has its own provenance or like there was a first block and a first token and i've met this dude who has been a bitcoiner who's been like inscribing things not in ordinals but inscribing things on into utxos for quite some time like back at way back in the day and uh the dude on the phone a couple of months ago was like i'll tell you this long weird theory i have but uh it it involves bitcoin being a time machine the machine of time and i think he's onto something. I still don't fully understand the concept, but it is a self-adapting and regulating way of marking moments in time through the passage of roughly 10 minutes per block and everything within those blocks. Um, It's something that hopefully, I mean, ideally anyway, after most of the clocks on earth don't exist anymore for whatever reason, like every time we make a new clock, that's a different clock than the first clock. So like the first clock that was telling time, just like isn't there anymore, right? So like we're all just sort of, it's like the game of telephone with clocks. 
But if there's this one thing that can be a self-regulating adjusting clock, um, we can now hold every occurrence that is either recorded on chain or recorded at a time where something else was recorded on chain up against this like ultimate machine of time, um, which is one of the many reasons that I think Bitcoin is really great for this purpose. Uh, Nick, how do you do today? What do you have for breakfast and what do you think about provenance? So what I had for breakfast, I had some leftovers, I had some uh, chicken and rice. And what I think about provenance to add on to what you are saying is I don't think people can fully grasp like what provenance means on Bitcoin just because it's so early and like Bitcoin is not that old. It's not like 100 years old. I think it will start becoming more and more important as we start to forget things and generations go by um, and things that usually just get lost over time are going to be actually like forever on Bitcoin. And I think that's when things are going to be uh, like really taking off on Bitcoin. Um, like I think it's just super early for people to just to fully understand. And I think for the next future generations, it's going to be huge. It seems that blockchain in general solves the problems that we're looking for in provenance. This is sort of, so, you know, I read an article before every one of these things. I think like four people probably read them. That's okay. It doesn't matter if you read it. I write it and it helps me get my my ideas down on paper. And I think the, the conclusion that I came to, I started with what was provenance before Bitcoin started, like before we started having this conversation, what did it mean? What were the problems within it? What did we face as, you know, archaeology and art from that side? And how does blockchain solve that? And we realize that when you are able to track the location of something immutably and you can't go back and change it, I mean, for the most part anyway, without like a severe big hubbub and lots of movement, um, you get to not have ar stupid meaningless arguments about the things that are mundane details. Like basically what I'm trying to say is that Bitcoin has the longest proof of history, meaning that it would be more difficult to go back and change anything or to discard the record in any specific way. So now we have this thing that automatically tracks all this stuff for us, the mundane details that like we had to care about before. But now we don't really have to care about them if they simply exist and we can focus all of our energy on creating. And I think the human race has seen something, this is like a trend since the first industrial revolution or probably since the Bronze Age, where the fewer people we need to do the mundane, mundane stuff, the more people can focus on thinking, creating, and problem solving in like this critical thinking philosophy kind of way. So this is, I think, another example historically of us offloading some of the, the flawed human work to not flawed algorithms run by a heap of robots so that we can move on and all become artists or all become critical thinking problem solvers or, or whatever. Prism, how do you do? Yeah, just uh, I, I, I forgot to mention um, the, the thing about Bitcoin and kind of playing off of what you were saying just a moment ago. Um, the thing about Bitcoin is the provenance isn't just what you're doing. It could possibly be what someone else had done. Um, so you mentioned the the pizza sats. Um, you know, we have Nakamoto sats and first transaction sats. And, you know, we have these different layers that are um, that are specific to Bitcoin. So you could tie your provenance to other things that have happened in the history of what's happened here on Bitcoin, which then tells a little bit more of a story. It, it, it gives you a little bit more you know, um, I, I don't know the word for it, um, history behind, behind what you're doing. So I think that's something that's, that's really important. I mean, again, this is like, a, this provenance is such a wide ranging term. Um, 
But I think here on Bitcoin, you just have you have the opportunity to add many, many layers to that provenance. So are you saying that potentially, since we can't go back and undo anything, but we can always add to everything, that Bitcoin is allowing us to become more of a compilation, like a uh, uh, a much more tied in and long-standing compilation of historical events rather than being these segmented, confusing, like when did the pyramids get built? Was it when we consider ancient Egypt to have happened or was did they move into that building, right? Like we don't know that. And I think a lot of the way that we behave in the future depends on what we know of the past. And if we don't know, strictly speaking, what has occurred in the past, we can't rightly operate in the future based on something that, you know, makes actual sense. Um, I was going to move on next to Knox and ask you, Knox, what did you have for breakfast and what does provenance mean to you? What did I have for breakfast? Um, I actually got a bunch of worms and I just ate them raw. <laughs> I want to, are you kidding? Because if you're not, yes. I feel like I did the same thing because I'm in Austin and I ate barbecue the other day and I liked it so much. I got a pound and a half to go and that's what I've been eating for breakfast for the last two days and I feel terrible. And I think worms might be a better option at this point. Um, I'm getting knocks back up here currently. Let's go to Bongo. Bongo, what did you have for breakfast? We'll come back to you, Knox. Sorry about that. Bongo, what did you have for breakfast and what does provenance mean to you? Why is provenance important to this? I had pasta with chicken uh, for breakfast. It was awesome. And provenance, Was it cold or hot? They were cold until I put it in the oven. Um, provenance to me it's just a, another step to having a better protocol in our particular case. Um, parent child inscriptions are more than that, apparently, but that's the first use case, and it's just making this new tech better and more robust. Um, it also, just like ordinals, it made things feel more real. It, it, it is easier to buy into the narrative when there's actually things that point out to that, right? When it's real, it's easy to fall into the narrative um, because non-fungible tokens, they were not real until now. And so now on top of it, we do have, um, we have provenance. So it's a cool little add-on. I know it might, it, it, it's way more than that. I mean, um, you're making the argument for Bitcoin and Bitcoin is a beautiful honeypot of information. Everything comes in, nothing gets, gets out. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of provenance for whoever wants some. Knox, what did you have for breakfast, and what does provenance mean to you on Bitcoin? Oh, first of all, I just want to say I am very happy to be freed from my prison of, uh, of, of not being able to speak here. I felt very insulted. Um, <laughs> um I'm the idiot. I don't know where the limits are on X faces, so that was my bad. Thanks, everybody. It's all good, Donnie. You're a great guy. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. Um, I had eggs and toast for breakfast. That was my my breakfast of champions, and that was it. Scrambled eggs and toast. Um, <laughs> what do I think of Providence? I think it's fucking awesome, man. I think it's like the reason why we're here. Um, and I'm loving these threads that ZK is putting out on this stuff because, it, I mean, it's true. We really have been kind of lied to in a big way um uh, you know about uh, like our ipfs pointers and you know that it's it's not actually the, the token itself is is something that that has provenance the the token is, is immutable um but the art itself is not so now you know obviously on-chain you know, nfts were 
Oh, I'm not supposed to say that word here. Um, <laughs> on chain was, uh, <laughs> was, uh, finally someone did it. Thank you. <laughs> Nobody can do it. <laughs> on chain is, is possible on, on ETH, right? Um, there are quite a few projects out there like cyber brokers is one that I could think of. Um, forgotten runes, um, who are also on ordinals. Um, but, um, you know, ultimately everything on, on, uh, ordinals is on chain and there forever and has the provenance of, of immutability. And this is when this was inscribed onto this Satoshi through the hash data. We can read this. It's there forever. Um, and I just think that that's something that is so important um, to to art in general to give to give the the the, the sustainability that the fact that it will last forever is is just insane. I mean, I still can't get over the fact that my my profile picture is going to outlive me. Like I could literally pass it down to my children one day, which is just and insane. And I, you know, obviously, like. Like, I mean, we're not even talking just my children, like my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, like those levels of, of sustainability and, and how long it will last. So, you know, I think when you look at things from that perspective, you can you can see like, holy shit, like this, this makes sense. You know, like even real real world art doesn't always last very long. I mean, if you use a piece of shit, piece of paper, I mean, or a napkin. That's not going to last, you know, more than a few years even. I mean, I'm even seeing, I look around uh, my house and I see some some photos that I have that have been printed out that are already degrading. So, it, you know, it, I think that these things are really important to highlight. And, you know, provenance is like a really big part of that because it, it just shows that like this is when this happened and this is like verifiable. This is true. And it is forever. Mic drop. <laughs> A lot of the narrative around the early NFTs, and maybe not CryptoPunks, but my early experience with NFTs being ETH and Soul stuff, was about immutability and um, ownership. And yes, you do immutably own the token, and the token is updatable by the creator, which was something I didn't know until like you know some amount of time in, because you can't, you're just not born knowing everything about things, right? So you have to go through these periods of time where you don't know, and maybe you learn the hard way in a lot of ways. But I guess the summarization of that is that on-chain data is only as immutable as the chain that it's stored on. And that distinction is, I think, where Bitcoin wins out because it has the, just data-wise, this isn't an opinion of mine, it's just, it is it is a fact that it is probably more likely than the rest of the chains to last longer than they do due to its uh, consensus mechanism. Polly, what did you have for breakfast and what are your thoughts on provenance? Oh, hey, Donnie. I am yet to, to have breakfast, so uh, let's say I'm consuming the information from the space for breakfast. Um, and in right, um, on topic of provenance, um, I think, um, and I do not like to divide. Uh, um, or, or differentiate between the importance of the development of each blockchain because I feel um, as uh, uh, someone who's truly passionate about uh, Web3, like 
from the community aspect, the art and technology. I feel like if uh, uh, this space will prove itself, um, you know, and so far I feel like just 1% of population is onboarded into Web3. But if we are to prove that... Um, despite our differences or uh, like life preferences or um, yes, if we, we are to prove that uh, there is power in unity, there's power in adopting and developing technology, um, like that will be a big win um, for a humanity. And uh, of just on topic of Bitcoin, I love absolutely love the idea um that uh, you know from the uh chain that used to be perceived as outdated um from the technological standpoint it's taking a huge step forward and sort of um um like following the principles that uh, nature has mastered already which is uh, resilience and adaptability so I feel like it's just the beginning. Um, maybe uh, the journey of uh, Bitcoin um, is not about like setting um, rules in stone, but it is about uh, being adaptable. Um, and uh, the more um, intelligent or like smart, capable, passionate people will work or like would be interested, which I think, uh, I think we're in a good place. Yeah. Well, that, uh, you brought up that it doesn't matter which chain wins or which is dominant or whatever. And I, you know, while I was saying like Bitcoin is the clear answer to this thing, I was realizing that I didn't say what the question was. And it just sounds like I'm rallying for Bitcoin. I, re I, I realize I'm becoming a bit of a maxi, but I'm only becoming a bit of max of a maxi with regards to certain things, because I think that there can still be pogs and there can still be emails like emails maybe don't need to be immutable like what if what if emails are just like solana was built for emails or for gaming where assets are not necessary or something like that like there there is a use case for something that is light and actually the next episode is entitled a kind of trash traffic jam of a name on slash off chain because i i wanted to follow up the provenance discussion with the discussion about why what needs to be where it needs to be. Which again, I don't think, we like to think that we have these universal solutions to universal problems, but Bitcoin may only solve some of these like high-end art problems. I mean, it's going to solve a lot of other things too, I think. But I don't know that every single thing, like if I send my wife a picture of a chair we just bought, does that need to be etched into Bitcoin forever? I don't know. I don't think so. And I don't know why we'd need to tell that story in 2000 years. You know, I guess you never know until after the fact. But um, I agree with you. This is about inclusion and unity and creative process. And every single thing humans do that makes human life distinctly different than what we imagine the rest of nature is doing. This is all about facilitating that in the variety of ways that we can. Speaking of which, Swag Toshi. What did you have for breakfast? If hey, any? I had a great breakfast this morning. Start, start off with a little... Little quad shot iced Americano, splash of oat milk. Boom. And I dipped up some some fresh white rice, did uh two fried over easy eggs on top, and then way too much Lao Ga Ma. So your boy's nice and full. I'm coming to stay with breakfast. you, man. And for those that don't know, Lao Ga Ma is the goaded uh Chinese chili crisp. Uh so yeah, good breakfast. 
thoughts on provenance. I think just generally provenance to me is the overall history of an asset. Um, specifically with ordinals, you know, it's the, it's the ability to authenticate the origin and the chain of custody, essentially, of who's who's owned that piece in the past. And I think it's I think it's really, really powerful when it comes to art. And I think, you know, if you look at it, just like iconic paintings over time, like even just collectibles, you know, the provenance is, is who's owned it before you and who created that piece. And I think it plays in a lot to collectors. And I think it potentially can affect, you know, ultimately affect the value uh, with ordinals, the ability to, you know, authenticate a piece. And with, with parent child coming out too, I think that adds another layer of, of, <clears throat> of provenance to, to the ordinals and the ability to, you know, ultimately boil it down to who created this? Is this authentic and who's owned it since? I look forward to seeing what the parent child thing does or how we um, not exploit, how we utilize this new resource. Because in my, in the back of my head, I think I would mint a token or inscribe rather an ordinal that said um, Donnie's collection. And then I would make a hundred or 10,000 things from that as children. And then those things go out to live in the world as children perpetually of that one token, thereby indicating that it is the collection on chain. It doesn't matter what Magic Eden says. It doesn't matter what any other marketplace thinks about it. This is the collection. But what do I do with that token? Do I burn the wallet? Do I send it to Satoshi's wallet? Does he wake up and send it back? Do I send it to someone else to add onto that collection? And while these all sound like potential problems, I think they also open up a lot of opportunities to give people the ability to add on, because as we were seeing before, we can't go back and change the past with Bitcoin, but we can find new ways of adding to the future and linking it back to previous moments. So I look forward to seeing how that plays out. I know we're only in the first few days of it really, uh, properly anyway. And I do know that upon the launch of the idea in the Ordinal's handbook of uh, basically provenance parent-child relations, we went from negative 85,000 to negative 185,000 um, cursed inscriptions. So there was 100,000 cursed inscriptions in that one week-ish. And it took us like <laughs> the whole time prior to get to 85,000, which was at least a few months. So somebody is testing this idea and somebody really thinks it's as cool as you and I do too. And another thing about tracking the the path of something and finding out who owned, like being able to tell who owned what and when like a hundred years ago, if like, I don't know, some famous person owned a piece, it may add value to that piece. But we don't get to get, this is the fun part, we don't get to go back and look at names. We get to go back and look at wallet addresses, which in a lot of cases never have names attached to them. So while again, this may sound like a problem, it sort of doesn't matter because the wallet is the thing we're tracking. The wallet is the thing where we say, this wallet also owned the following things, or is the Genesis wallet of the following collection or whatever. So it like, while it might be a little bit of a bummer not to know that it was Michael Jordan specifically who owned this basketball ordinal, it might be cool to later find that out by accident after not knowing that and only knowing what the wallet address was. So, you know, another weird layer of fascination there that we're going to have to find some way to deal with in the back of our heads. Uh, Knox, howdy. I, I just wanted to touch back on something you were saying before uh, about the, you know, does everything need to be immutable, like the chair you send to your, the picture of the chair you send to your wife? And I would say, uh, no, definitely not. Um, I don't think we, we need to, to be, have, be able to tell the story of how 
Donnie sent a picture to his wife of the chair. <laughs> you know, I but I, I do think it's important for storytelling. I do think it's important for, uh, for for artwork. And I mean, storytelling, I guess, is a form of artwork in its own way. But like in, in general, like you think about like something like a fairy tale, a fairy tale it, uh, like has has grown and evolved and changed over the years. And I mean, we can go back and get a pretty good idea of what that was, that fairy tale when it first started. But we don't actually know what the original fairy tale was, like 100% verifiably. I mean, maybe there is some books out there. Maybe this is a bad example. But either way, I think you're getting the point. <laughs> and the point is, is that with this, we can see these stories and, you know, how they started, uh, you know, where they came from, who they came from, you know, and especially with parent-child now, being able to, 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 to verifiably say like, okay, this is, this is me. I, you know, I came from here. This is my website. This is, this is my, uh, my persona, everything. Um, you know, and I don't know. And in, in, in that case, I, I just I think it's it's, uh, it's something that is not needed for everything, but it is needed for for storytelling and it is needed for artwork. And I think a lot of the value of that comes from there. I think that's the confusing part about what needs to be on and off chain is that you don't know that something needed to be on chain until it's too late. And it's not because a lot of things that become important are not important when they're made or at least the importance isn't recognized necessarily, and then they become important later on, we'll never know if it wasn't stored on chain, whether or not it ought to have been stored on chain. Strange uh, dichotomy there. Steve, welcome up. You have your um, your hand up, which means you're not on desktop today. Congratulations. Howdy. Thank you, thank you. So if, if I get interrupted, it's because I'm getting a war call in. Okay, so... Um, don't take it too personal. I, I have to say, I'm envious of everyone here who is able to eat a big breakfast because I'm a coffee type of a guy, right? My coffee will last me from 9, 9 a.m. and I'll take lunch about 3, 3 p.m., 4 p.m., depending on how busy my day is. But um, to you hear like, eat? do I sleep eat? What, what do you yeah. mean? Do I wake, wake up do in the middle of the night? middle of the night and find a bag of granola? Like in the morning, <laughs> do you see that you have eaten food that you don't remember eating? That just no. seems impossible. How do you do that? <laughs> you know what? I don't do... <sighs> this is the thing. Like, I am guilty of like, if I'm up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., I'm guilty of just going to the kitchen, stuffing like some ham or prosciutto like in my mouth and falling back asleep. So maybe that's why uh, it's a little embarrassing, but it is what it is, right? No, no. Um, no one's judging you. No one's judging. It's no a good filter and you shouldn't be friends with them anyway. Exactly, right? So provenance. I keep hearing people saying provenance. It's actually, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced provenance. So the A is pronounced with an E. But anyways, like... About goddamn time, right? This has been released because we were waiting for this shit since NFT NYC, which was in April. I mean, you got to look at it two different perspectives from the founder's perspective and from the investor's perspective. Because let's be honest, we're first and foremost all, all investors, right? So, from a founder, this is the greatest thing that can happen to us in terms of no one is able to ever front run our collections with the whole Yuga thing that happened. I don't know if you guys remember back then, someone was able to front run one of their 12 full pieces. Now, as an investor, man, Rachel. this is very funny, right? <laughs> Somebody got it. <laughs> but looking at, you know, as an investor, like someone said, Michael Jordan, I mean, I'm buying the authentic piece. This isn't some, you know, some fake 
item that I'm actually buying. I mean, this is great because I'm actually buying from the legitimate piece, the legitimate collection. And I think it's actually more beneficial for investors um, uh, with provenance being implemented because now, you know, we always say it's on chain, it's on chain. But if I'm seeing 10 of the same things that are, that's being inscribed, how am I as an investor, how am I supposed to know which one is a legitimate item? So, I mean, it, this is probably the greatest, one of maybe one of the most essential implementations that RAFJAF has released for Ward Client. Um, shout out to Michael Jordan, by the way. So, Bam. Good call, man. Um, looking at it from both angles is necessary. We are always guilty of, because we can't help it, only looking through our own eyeballs. And I look at this through the perspective of someone who wants to know the details about something, not really the perspective of someone who needs to prove the details about anything. Um, so thanks, man. Who have we not gotten to yet? Coinup, I suppose we have not heard from you. And Chip, if either of you have something to say, fire away. If not, Coinup, what'd you have for breakfast? And what are your what's your take on why provenance matters? Provenance. 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 Good morning, good morning. What did I have for breakfast? I had coffee with cream and someone shared their apple Danish with me. So that's what I had for breakfast. And I was going to add something to your GM thing that you said right off the bat. Because um, the provenance thing, I think everyone pretty well covered it. Uh, the blockchain, it's a blessing to have. We can track the money. We can track the art. It's not a 99% sure. Let's go to the pawn shop historian see what he says. It's a hundred percent sure. So, um, what I will say about oh the GM thing. What's nice is I got, you know, I'd say GM to people, and it's kind of like a touch point to see how their day is. So, like you said, the head nod. And I used to say GM on a daily basis, but I kind of stopped. I don't know for a couple days, and I realized if I don't say GM, it's not not giving people a real touch point to say hi to me or check up on me. So I think it's important not only say GM to other people, but give people a touch point to GM back. Because, I don't know, when you're low, no one will know if you don't communicate or give them a touch point. It's the truth. It's an open-ended, not even what's up, because what's up's a question. You know when you walk some by somebody on the street and they say, how you doing, and you get past it, like they, they say it so quickly that you're already past them by the time you're, and you're like, well, I can't answer now. It was kind of like there was an undue amount of pressure there, and now I can't answer the question, and I feel like I did a bad job in that interaction. The GM eliminates that entire uh, possible open-endedness. That When you get into a Discord channel, you say, GM. You didn't ask a question. If nobody answers it, it's not a big deal. No one feels like they should have. You didn't feel like you wanted an answer and you didn't get it. Um, in a digital space, we don't, we're not walking down a physical street and we don't bump into physical people. So we don't know that they're there. So we can't say, all right, and they can't go, all right. We're just like, is anyone here? But it's not a question because there's no pressure to say it. It's an open-ended head nod and somebody else can head nod back to you or they can ask you a question. And I agree with you on that. Um, I saw that Chip came up here and then Chip came down, so there's no Chip. Uh, we have a new speaker on the stage, Native Bitcoin. You're welcome to add your piece here if you'd like. Welcome. I am a uh, Stacks advocate. Um, so um, me and my brother Harold are actually 
uh, kind of the forefront of governance over there. We just came out of a uh, residency program, uh, a grant program where we had we were granted uh, money to do more research on governance um, because it seems to be a common problem amongst you know DAOs and uh, just Web three spaces in general. And um, I think what provenance allows us to do is um, give credit where credit is due for innovation. And so uh, an example um, that always sticks into my mind, right, is uh, that the settler colonialists uh, called the indigenous people savages and primitive in their technologies. But that was because they were looking at technology through the lens of war. And, uh, you know, our people were looking at technology in the form of uh, community building. And so a lot of our technology was focused around commons. And um, I just think that that's something that's, that seems to be lacking in the space. As somebody that comes from a traditional finance background, I've sat in a lot of DeFi spaces and think tanks and stuff like that. And these people, the, it's we're just going to create the same shit here if we're not careful. And if we don't align values um, with people, and it's a very hard thing to align values with people when you can't see their face or you've never met them in person. And so um, I just, you know, if we if we're not careful, you know, we're just going to go into business with people for just because we only want to make money. And then, you know, uh, when you make a lot of money and people start arguing over the money, it's you realize it's because you never really talked about your values and how they align with each other. And so. Um, yeah, I think uh, I just think provenance uh, is going to allow us to have a more accurate history, you know, of, of who innovated what, who had a hand in the design process of certain things. And um, and it's going to allow us to organize better and align values better. Right. Because there is like a version control of where I can go back and I can if I see something that catches my eye, I can see who created it who's collected it because the creator and the collector are both people that I would probably want to talk to and see if, if our values align enough to create something together. And so, um, yeah, that's what provenance means to me. It means, you know, you know, when more people are interested in provenance and, and the more people we get interested, um, you know, the more access to resources people like myself will have to dive deeper into my, um, my cultural heritage. It is important that we catalog the past appropriately from as many perspectives as we can in order to navigate the future as best we would see. And that is an awesome point that I think we forget about because we get so caught up in what's going on right now on the micro level. Like when you're walking down the street, you're thinking about that block, not necessarily thinking about that city or its government or the country you're in or the world you've been in or much less uh, different time periods of people. Something we were forced to think about a lot. I went to undergrad for philosophy with a big focus in ethics. And something we thought about a lot was the concept of what is the right move? What is the right action? And something that grabbed onto me, the, the philosophical outlook that grabbed onto me the most was utilitarianism, which means the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And on, at face value, you think to yourself, yeah, of course, we want the most people to be the most happy that they can. Like we, if we measure it in happiness units, how many people get how many units of happiness and how many units is that overall? And did we do a good job of doing that? But even from the perspective of what group that changes, is it who lives in your house that you're you're in undergoing this and nobody outside of that matters? Is it your country? Is it your world? 
Is it the universe? And is it all times? Um, are you worried about future people? Are you worried about humans two years in the future when you do anything you do? This is something we do. It, it takes like brain cells, not just brain cells. It takes energy to remove yourself from the direct line of sight that you have. And I think that's just how predators operate. We look at the things in front of us and we look for things, we seek them, we find problems, we find solutions. Um, and usually we're not burdened with any of the past, which I think makes us doomed to continue repeating it. You see the ruins of cities, like they, every city gets big and then engages in big sports. And then at some point they go away and nobody knows what they did that entire time. So when we go look at the, the ruins of like, let's say the Colosseum, we don't know what any of that means in its context. We don't know how the Colosseum was used rightly. I mean, we do sort of, but like, there's no actual record of this. You know, there's no record that we can trust of that because even if it were recorded by a person and only told to one other person, there's variability in that single interaction. And if it was told by a person to begin with, there's variability in the way that it was recorded because it was recorded through a person's outlook, which is a bummer. So now we look back and we go, oh my God, they were just like us. They got so far. When in reality, we should be like, maybe it's dangerous that we're engaging on sports, brutal sports vision on a mass scale. Maybe this is a sign of the apocalypse. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Because like we don't know because we don't know what any of these civilizations stopped being civilizations about. And maybe this is, you know, a step into the future where we get to kind of know that and become better or become more of whatever it is we want to be whatever that thing is. Uh, we have another new speaker up on stage, Sidebet. Welcome here. Uh, what'd you have for breakfast and what are your thoughts on provenance and durability? Hey, GM, GM, everybody. Um, yeah, what I had for, this is Darren, this is Darren from uh, OnChain Monkey. Uh, I know a lot of you from my other account, Prism, and big fan of what what you guys are doing in the art community, BitGod, um, as well. Um, let's see. Breakfast this morning I had with my three-year-old, which which was of course uh, toast with jam and strawberries uh, that he didn't eat, so I ate his leftovers, I believe. What did he eat instead? Did he just go breakfastless? Yeah. I always wonder this. I don't mean to interrupt you, but like, does he get something else when he doesn't want? That yeah, thing? So, or do so, you say you got to just like? Yeah, it? good on the on the way. So on the way to uh, drop him off at uh, drop him off at his preschool, he had a yogurt and a two fig newtons for breakfast, I believe. Still solid, not child abuse. Not that that was what I was accusing <laughs> you of. I just, I always like my my wife moved elsewhere in the country, down south to go help her sister care for kids. And I've never been surrounded by kids. I don't hang out at schools. I'm not a teacher, and I don't have kids, and I don't have like siblings who have kids. So kids are kind of an enigma to me. And when I hear that like someone serves a child food that they made, and the kid goes, "I'm not eating that," and then they get different food, I'm like, should. Is that the way this is supposed to go? Or is the kid just supposed to be hungry for a day and then decide to eat the food next time? You know, you know maybe not anything to do with this episode. Sorry, I just had to. You know, no, it's a, it's a question that. I ask myself every day. And uh, yeah, no. Um, but no, the, um, on, the, on the provenance topic, it's, uh, it's very interesting. You know, on-chain monkeys doing a lot of interesting stuff. You know, first 10K collection to inscribe um, the full 10K collection on Bitcoin um, and ordinals. And... You know, Danny from that community talks a lot about it and the importance of it in the art community. But I also think that, you know, there are new use cases, you know, specifically this on Bitcoin because don't say NFT. Um, it's all on chain. So we usually don't um, say For NFT. instance, news. Thanks again um, to if anybody's familiar with, with, with Noster and what's happening day, with, I think it's called One BTC News and some other outlets. You know, you think, you know, we live in a world now where, you know, the truth of, um, 
the the truth is very fleeting and you know it's getting increasingly that way and i think that having you know provenance in terms of where the information that society at large is consuming is is super important and i think that as we as you know society um in many ways loses faith in a lot of its institutions you know having provenance and being able to track you know where what's coming from where and who's saying what and you know being able to have some record of that um is is interesting to think about in the context of you know things like the news or our information that we're consuming even on apps like this that are centralizing the information and filtering it through you know private algorithms somehow but i think that on the on the art side too you know obviously you know provenance is is super important for artists um to be able to take control of their their art their life their 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 work and to be rewarded for you know putting in the effort like so many people on in this room are you know spending the time and putting in the hard work um to put out different different uh, pieces of art or different products applications and having provenance and having the ability to track that um and know that yeah and and have people get rewarded even if it's not credit you know being able to reward people because it's because it's on chain and on a public ledger i think is super important for the way that products are are being built you know on different blockchains throughout the ecosystem the question of what is truth is something that i struggle with a lot and I was forced to think about it a lot through college, but college was like 15 years ago. So I don't know if I've really given it any mandatory thought since then or any like complete come to a conclusion thought. Maybe conclusions are for stupid people because like we never really know what is right. We just are, we know what's best at the moment. And then we're proven wrong later because we have more information. You know, it's always part of the process. But trying to mitigate what the truth is and where it's stored and how it's come to, the the main question that I've I guess struggled with is are we uncovering the truth as a society or are we generating it by agreeing on things? And a good example of this is um, that table that my laptop is on right now that I'm not sitting at, but I'm walking like pacing near. If anyone in this space or anyone from outside this room came into this room, they would probably all agree that the table's there and they bump into it and it moves and we all kind of experience it in the same way. So consensus is how we arrive at truth. But if we don't, all sense something like like we don't all know that gamma rays are constantly pummeling our body right like we can't sense that we don't know it's there but it doesn't mean it's not happening it's not true it's just not sensible with our you know five modes uh, five pieces of equipment that we have to do that with the world so then i think about things like i don't know where what is correct to do in what situation and is any news real or is news just some person's take on something and could that even be considered truth in any particular system or, or series of systems it just seems like truth is such a it's so easy to think true and false it's binary something is right and something is wrong but i think it's so much more complicated than that and i think what we're doing with blockchain tech and immutability on a very long-standing chain is maybe helping us come to a better vision of what truth might even mean to begin with. Uh, Turk, what is up? Good to have you back up. Yeah, man. Um, um, yeah, I just ate. So, um, you know, that, that's not what you eat. Um, I ate um, some trophy pasta. It's like squiggled. I don't know. It's kind of like tied together thing with some uh, some mushrooms and some chili pepper and Anyway, I just wanted to get it in my uh, my engine so, I'm jealous. so I can get going. You jealous? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll fly you some. Um, yeah, you know, um, 
Donnie, every time I talk to you, uh, you know, uh, you know, you bring up philosophy, you know, I studied existential philosophy in, at, at NYU, um, for two and a half years while, while I was training for other stuff. Um, and I think it's important to, to delineate, you know, truth versus like fact, you know? So it's like, if somebody is look, uh, you know, looking at say, you know, the, the, uh, Da Vinci's, um, uh, last supper, thing like that you know some people reflect on the last supper as that image you know and and that, but that is just a perspective that uh that that painter let's say had of that that historical you know inference or something like that you know wh whether you know so so there's like this difference of truth and what is like factually happening and and how to delineate those things and as referring to you know and, and you know commenting it or relating it to Bitcoin, you know, it seems like there is fact and truth that is intermingled at the same time. Um, but then again, that, that could be subject to, um, to, to question as well, you know, but yeah. I think the, we are, we were blurring the lines between fact and opinion, which I mean, they used to be, I think there was like, I, I saw some article uh, saying that there were a bunch of like misprinted school signs in the nineties and two thousands that said something like, fact is what's actually happening and the opinion is your what you think is happening or something and it it turned out a whole bunch of people who think that their experience of the world is what fact is and i think i don't think anyone means it maliciously but when we say things like this whiskey is bad or that tree is ugly we're assigning something factual to that we're not saying that i think this is ugly or i think this is bad strawberries don't taste good to me we're saying strawberries don't taste good and it, the more we use language like that, the more it becomes a reality that like, all right, if everybody inscribed their take on strawberries onto the Bitcoin blockchain, all of us, all 8 billion of us, and everybody said strawberries are bad, is it not then true that strawberries are bad? Like I, I, the, the difference, the, the blurred lines between fact and opinion or truth and fact or whatever, I think are becoming more blurred. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. I just think it's dangerous if we don't know we're doing it and we don't make up like a new word for it or take it as seriously as it is being put forth. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, it's a good point until there's like an outlier that sort of contends that, 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 that major consensus, um, you know, it's all borrowed thought, you know, until you get po holes poked in your argument, you know, like say in the space right now, say there is one that there's the smartest person. Until somebody in the space goes, well, hey, I, I can poke a hole in your argument, and and and, and if you have no retort, uh, because it's devastating to 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 how you've learned your truth or you know acquired it, th then then is that the leading thought? Uh, uh, you know, is 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 that now the you know the the, the person that split your your you know blew your hair back? Um, you know, is that then the leading thought or the leading truth or the leading fact uh, until there's another outlier? You know, I don't know. That's why I like the concept of reinscription. I like that um, everybody can inscribe that the Earth is the center of the universe, and then once Galileo makes his point, we can reinscribe over that as a newer thing that happened later, which is information we came across after the original thought uh, that the Earth is not only not the center of the universe, but not even the center of our solar system. And now we regard that as fact, where before it was fact that uh, the Earth was the center of the universe. You know. This allows us to stack things in a row and be able to update the things we thought without discarding the things we misthought, because it's important that we remember the journey of what we got wrong in order to get the thing right. It's like showing your work uh, on a math test. 
You really want to know how you got to something because it explains fully the journey and process by which you did that and informs any other time you might want to do that. Bad Brothers, welcome up. What's happening? Um, no, yeah, what do you call them? The factual versus truthful thing. I mean, great point. Um, this is something that I guess is more familiar to me in the context of, you know, like the corporate press because, um, and the best example I've heard about it recently, actually heard this one recently, but um, it's like if, you know, Donnie and Bongo were both to have get married this weekend, but then the headline you would put Donnie, Not gonna have Donnie and Bongo, like, you know, to women, other people, but in the headline you put Donnie and Bongo wed this weekend. Um, you know, that would be a factual statement, but obviously it's not truthful, right? Because the headline's implying that they got married. So you see this because, you know, the press will, you know, cover themselves being like, oh, we just report the facts, this and that. But just saying you report the facts doesn't mean you're telling the truth, right? So those are two like very completely different things. And, um, no, yeah, it's great. And point. reporting versus observation, right? <laughs> because the reporting was accurate, but the observation was maybe miscalculated or something like this. This is actually my favorite argument for the Oxford comma, even though I don't use it in most of my writing. I don't know if you know what the Oxford comma is. Everybody, it's when you have a list of three things and you put a comma after the second one. It's not technically necessary, but I'll show you a sentence where it is. Uh, I love my parents, Batman and Superman. If there are commas throughout that sentence, then you know that you love your parents and Batman and Superman. But if you take out that second comma and re it removes the one between Batman and Superman, it looks like you're saying, I love my parents, comma, who are Batman and Superman. Now, we can rearrange that sentence and put it like this without an Oxford comma. I love Batman, my parents, and Superman. It's not confusing once the context is correct. And I think it's on the delivery to ensure that the observer has the lowest odds of screwing it up which the blockchain does not take care of for us. So we might have things like me and Bongo getting married, not to one another, but to other people separately, being misinterpreted in the future. And this, I have zero idea how blockchain solves. In fact, I think it might make it worse by making it <laughs> there longer or whatever. Bad Brothers, yeah. No, yeah, and I'll kind of take it back to one of your earlier quotes where you were talking about utilitarianism, where it's like, you know, the main thing against you, utilitarianism is really kind of like morality, right? To where, you know, it would be utilitarian to say, um, hey, we have six kids who need organs and there's this one prisoner who would be a uh, perfect organ donor. Uh, so let's kill him and donate those six organs. Um, but, you know, you run into the issue of, you know, human rights and stuff like that, right? So, um, you know, and it goes back to this factual and truthful where it's just like, you know, we heard many over the last few years, like, oh, you got to trust these experts, this and that. Well, experts, number one, aren't, always telling you the truth and by their nature are kind of utilitarian where, you know, they don't take into account, um, you know, things like rights and things like that when they're kind of designing these things. That's what technically, you know, if you would have leaders, which we do, um, they're supposed to take that information into account and then go, okay, how does this, you know, how can we implement this without, you know, violating people's rights and things like that? So, um, you know, you, you really got to watch those types of arguments and stuff and, you know, kind of understand that, um, you know, not every, not all experts are telling the truth and um, just the idea of the science. I mean, you know, there are hundreds of examples you can point to of just like, oh, science said this, but it was either funded by this group or, I mean, we thought fat and uh, was bad for decades and sugar was okay. And then, you know, that was all backed up by science from the sugar lobby. And uh, the big thing, I think it was Eisenhower had a heart attack that like caused like a health scare or whatever. And this is what basically they come up with after all this lobbying and these fake studies. So, um, yeah, you know, experts aren't always truth and, um, you know, facts aren't always truth too.
Yeah, that's one of the more infuriating things about data sets in general. Like if, if you and I both have, let's say there's 100 columns and 100 rows on some data set in Microsoft Excel, and it's outlining the number of hungry people in every country and the number, number of thirsty people in every country and the number of people above a certain uh, income level and below or whatever. You can infer a lot of comorbidity from this chart that is not necessarily causal meaning that two people looking at the same data set can come to two totally separate conclusions verifiably, like, and you can back it up too. Again, I have no idea how blockchain solves this problem other than exposing potentially the ways that it has happened before and not allowing it to be covered up when it did. So I guess there we go back to immutability. It's nice to, you can't, man, we were having a conversation last night about something like this, about how like when you inscribe art onto Bitcoin, it's forever, so you better not screw it up. And the whole time I was thinking to myself, no, do. Do screw it up. Do admit you're human. Let everyone else know you're human because you did scribble on a napkin a thousand times before you painted that thing. Or maybe you painted the same size canvas 200 times and just got the last stroke wrong on all of them. Doesn't that kind of change the meaning of that 201st one that turned out to be the museum masterpiece 200 years later? Like it, it, it shows the humanity in what we're doing. And if we are not human, why are we even talking about any of this? Because people are about people. That's the point of people. If you're on the planet alone, jokes aren't funny. Art doesn't matter. None of it matters without people. Um, so I think admitting our humanity and not being able to erase our mistakes as we go on, rather learning from it and referencing it in public, is probably the best way forward. And I don't even know if we have an option outside of that now that everything can be recorded, because it may just all be. Steve, how do you do? Wait, someone actually said not to screw up the art? Man, it was just a bunch of people talking. They That's... were artists, and they were talking from their viewpoint, and they were saying like that they have screwed up inscriptions before. I don't think they meant it the way I heard it, but they were saying that like they've inscribed something that they were like, oh shit, I didn't mean to. Oh fuck, it's there forever now. You know what I mean? That, and I'm, that's I'm like, insane. No, it's cool that, that, that I mean, you screwed that up. You wasted 50 bucks, but you didn't waste it because you learned not to screw that thing up next time. So I like my my viewpoint on that is just diametrically opposite from what I heard. It doesn't mean it's diametrically opposite from what they said, though. Yeah, I'm I'm extremely offended because my entire collection was a test. My entire collection was a mistake, right? So like, I mean, that's, that's us were mistakes. Uh, 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 exactly. That's the beauty of art. You can make whatever mistakes you want. If I draw a line, if it's not straight, that's still art to me. So who, okay, Bob Ross. Okay. I mean, who, who, who? Hey, who, who was that? Was that was that Chip? <laughs> Don't look. No, it wasn't Chip. <laughs> was that? Who was that? No, no, no. I know, I know. I was like, that voice, that voice is so familiar. Who, who was that bastard? Huh? Fallibility no, no, is but... what makes us human and not robot. Fallibility is cool. Uh, my parents have two children, and they are 15 years apart. I know it's from two different marriages, but you can't tell me one of those wasn't planned. You know what I mean? We, when we want a child, we can't make it happen. We can only make it happen by accident. Everything is accidental. And it's all beautiful and we can try to control it as much as we want. But control, I think, is something we have limited means of. And that's good. We should own that. Chip, you're back up for the second time. How do you do, man? You done dealing with them beavers ripping down trees and destroying your land? I uh, I have to agree with Steve as well that like not all mistakes are a bad thing. That's kind of how we come to um, a lot of the results we have are through making mistakes and through learning. As we go, this is an entirely new space um, in the reality that it's on 
chain, but it's also a concept that exists through NFTs. This has happened before. And some would say that NFTs were the test net or are a mistake. There, and we learned from those mistakes. And so now that we're on chain, we are doing things differently. We couldn't come to those conclusions without having made previous mistakes in the past. Nobody ever accelerates perfection without screwing things up first. Just it doesn't happen. No, yeah, a good example of that is probably like the whole royalty discussion, where it was just like everybody assumed royalties were enforceable, but then you know they went to zero percent, and everybody realized, oh, these royalties aren't enforceable. They're not on chain. So not that we have a perfect solution to enforce that on chain, but you know it was this false sense of security where everybody just kind of complied with it to where we realized, oh. No, those actually aren't enforceable and people need to think of a way to, you know, enforce that on chain. So unless you make that initial mistake of relying on third parties and then realizing that you don't, you probably don't get to the next step, which is, OK, how do we enforce this on chain? So, I mean, yeah, these are just some of the you know machinations that happen with an early technology, but the type of things that do have to happen. This is we are the species that has to touch the oven to know why not to touch the oven. And it's OK to have those scars on your hand because it means you tried and. uh Rock and roll. Agreed. Totally. Side bet. How do you do? Hey, thanks. Thanks again. I was just going to bring up uh, just one other example um, that that I learned about through uh, OnChain Monkey um, in the context of, of provenance, and that's land titles. Um, so there's a there's a great book uh, that was written by Hernando de Soto um, called The Mystery of Capital, and he basically makes the argument that um, the United States is the most powerful global empire in the world because you know not because of our military or any of our systems, but actually because our land title systems enables us to generate capital uh, from uh, the ownership rights for all the property. And so this isn't the case throughout the world, though. Most developing countries don't have uh, clear land titles. In fact, it's a smorgasbord of, you know, who owns what property. Um, there's no clear titling system for for land. It's passed down through generations um, or families. and there's no real way to take that um, to take that data in a in a um, consistent way and to use it to create leverage to borrow against for people to get loans. Um, and so it's interesting when you think about provenance and you know putting things on the blockchain, you know it's a it's the most you know decentralized public ledger um, in the case of Bitcoin and being able to you know put something like property rights or titles to deeds to homes or land, you know is something that, um, is, I think, a powerful concept for, you know, where this technology can go. It's one of the first series of things that I thought the blockchain technology would have the ability to help us solve was clerical government, um, like bookkeeping, deeds to land and titles to cars, driver's licenses, things that we currently rely on third-party systems, even if it's a government who is like, I don't even know if you can call the government a third party in this case because they are the ones issuing the thing, but... Anyway, it sounded like a better way to store things rather than the, you know, if it takes eight weeks to get a passport, why? If it, if I need to, like, send money through the mail to get a driver's license and I don't get it back for a week, why? Like, why is all of that so slow and everything on my phone? My phone has absorbed almost every other part of my life. My wallet is in my phone. My phone is a camera. I don't even know which one it is anymore. What do we use it more as, right? And it's also a computer that I'm doing this thing on. I'm not even just like calling. It's not a telephone. It's not a telegraph. It's like, it's literally everything. 
that it can be, and it keeps on absorbing more pieces of my life. Now I'm getting a little off the rails here. Bongo, what's happening, man? Oh, I didn't realize I had my hand up. But um, Donnie, did you tell your audience about your friend tech? And did you tell them about your amazing utility? I need to know because I'm a key holder. You're trying to pump your bags? Yeah, Bongo? I need my bags. Nobody to told go you to up. buy those keys. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, I'm still exploring friend tech and I'm trying to figure out if it's oh man okay as a species we go down these rabbit holes we explore things one at a time we find them we use them for everything we can possibly think of the United States is particularly good at this and we've been, we've founded our country on throwing spaghetti at every wall and seeing what sticks and we find things other people don't because we take this like cowboy approach to just doing everything when we figured out what an IPA was here we were like can we make it hurt though can we make it 23% in the most bitter thing you've ever tasted? You remember the dogfish head 120? I mean, if you've ever had it, you know what I'm talking about. It's like drinking a bottle of whiskey in every sip. It's crazy. That doesn't mean that IPAs are better when they're like that. It just means we push the limits in every single direction we can, trying to find out if there's any use case to it, which is you know, the, the two methods of problem solving. One is where you, you find a board and you fabricate a dart that hits that board. Or you get a handful of darts and you throw them up in the air and hope it hits something cool. And when it does, you analyze how that happened. I think friend tech is one of those things. I think it potentially solves the Discord server problem, the fungible, the non-fungible token entrance pass to alpha and knowing what someone is thinking, who you value the thoughts of. Um, I don't know if I value my thoughts enough to even say them on a billboard like that. And I don't even know what I would say. I don't even know if I have alpha. I don't know who I'd want to watch. Who would I want to watch? Who do I watch in the rest of my life? I just have so much thinking to do about it um, before I start saying anything that just <laughs> will trigger like price action in the keys that I don't even, I didn't even know I was selling, frankly. Like I didn't realize that that was the concept when I signed up. I think I've, I've become more holistically aware of what it is. And now I'm trying to think if I can use it for good because I refuse to use anything for evil. I'd rather starve to death and be homeless than exploit people i love so i'm still thinking about it bongo but if anybody else wants to speculate on the answer that i come to you're welcome to bet on it you know i don't care i'm not against that i just you know i don't blame me if you lose because i'm not on anybody's side i'm on the side of justice bad brothers howdy hey no yeah just go back to the land title point um i think this is part of the reason um besides altruism why you uh see some of uh, the blockchain kind of focus on Africa, because at the end of the day, unfortunately, you know, the American system um, doesn't allow a lot of room for innovation nowadays. So, and uh, land title, I used to work for the largest land title company in the US. So just to say that, you know, that there's a lot of forces, both financial and governmental, that would not want to see, you know, easier efficiencies implemented, right? So the idea would be to go to some of these countries who, you know, at least uh, on the American side, you could say, hey, the system works. You know, it may not work the best, but it works. But, you know, these other countries where, you know, they don't have these systems and it doesn't work at all, you know, are really the prime use cases to implement some of these things. Um, and although, I mean, I can't think of any African countries where you've seen the leaders like really buy into crypto. But uh, the bright side is we are seeing that more in, you know, Latin America, right, where um, you have uh, El Salvador, who is embracing Bitcoin. And then in Argentina, you have uh, Malay running um, and is leading in the presidential race. Who's a uh, ANCAP, and uh, he's pro. He wants he's wa he wants to dollarize because uh, you know the idea of switching 
you know, because they got to get rid of their cu- currency. But the idea of just switching the, you know, Bitcoin as of right now really isn't, you know, feasible or messageable. But the idea would be, hey, dollarize and then, you know, obviously remove any impedance from a law perspective to people's ability to use and spend Bitcoin. Uh, because they're a place who, you know, has had 100 percent inflation um, over the past year. And, um, you know, that that's one of those things that, you know, they've gotten to the point where they're fed up and, um, you know, that's really where you kind of start to see real change in some countries when things like that happen. Uh, luckily, they have Malay and they don't have some despot, you know, taking over that role to be the revolutionary. So we should all be happy for that. But yeah. It's funny, we talk so much about provenance and art and we forget, like I forgot already in this last hour and a half that we're also talking about building all of this on the one system that I think has the best chance of solving a lot of these like hyperinflationary current monetary system problems. Um, and also what else is funny is the United States and I guess anything that gets on top, anything in the developed world, we take these liberal uh, buckshot approaches to, to like just do everything until something works and be explorative and figure things out and be ruthless and wild and then we get to the top and we're like, bag hold time, conservative, lock it all down, don't change a thing, do what you're doing, don't explore anymore. I think that's how we see things rise and fall. That's how we see empires being built and empires fall. And the fact that the larger nations are not getting on board with this new technology to any large public degree anyway, I think it's a really bad sign for them. And as far as adoption in Africa or other undeveloped nations, not that Africa is a continent, countries within Africa that are not developed or don't have a stable currency are really easy, not targets in a bad way, but great targets for new adoption because the risk they're taking to try something new, it's like an only up risk. It, It can't be worse than what's currently happening. So I think a lot of the system, like like Cosmos being so widely adopted in, in, in countries in Africa specifically, but not in the United States, because we don't technically have as bad of a version of the problem that plagues those super undeveloped countries. So we're like, eh, it's fine. You know, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And they're like, it's not fine. I'll do anything else, uh, which is cool because they all end up proponents of a new technology. Uh, Native, howdy. You know, for, I just wanted to give a bit of my perspective in terms of just like a lot of the spaces and places that I've sat in, because I've sat in a lot of DeFi spaces, a lot of NFT places uh, or art spaces, a lot of spaces uh, where they're, you know, staying up to date on the, the ever-changing uh, regulatory news, um, global regulatory news about um, crypto. And um, I just wanted to say, like, you know, in relation to the way I'm viewing how it can help my people in my community is, you know, when I look at um, these protests that we're doing, you know, it's a very decentralized uh, uh, organization of our people in terms of, uh, you know, we spine injustice somewhere. Like right now, I think it is the um, up in Ottawa. I want to say that they're, they're not searching a dump for missing uh, and murdered indigenous women and children. The, the police refuse to to allow the dump to be searched. And, um, you know, so like <laughs> we saw with the um, the truckers, right, when they were trying to organize and they were crowdfunding, we saw the, the financial system uh, get into that, insert themselves into that situation in a very um, interesting way uh, to where they froze their bank accounts. I don't know if you guys remember that, but uh, just, just rem- remembering that, uh situation um really allows me to uh strip everything down to a blank camera canvas of what i've thought about 
uh, this space and kind of remove all of the perspective and voices that I've heard over the last couple of months because I've just been just observing the ecosystem and um, really just look at, like you were saying, from these third world countries point of view, like they don't give a fuck about how many apps you can build on top of Bitcoin. They see the fundamental value in a decentralized currency that cannot be manipulated by government or some type of external institution that just has shit monetary policy, right? So we the 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 value in Bitcoin is what it provides us provides to us as humans, and that's the ability to support each other without some third party coming in and saying, "No, you can't support them because it doesn't further my political agenda." Thank you for bringing up that point because what do you call that to me was like one of the biggest white pills from that COVID thing because that was like such a gift to Bitcoin and you put it exactly how you know I saw it where it was just like. For people who are into Bitcoin and skeptical of government, like that was one of those things we always knew they could do. Like they could shut off your bank account access and do those types of things if they wanted to. But, um, you know, until people actually see it, then, you know, they think, oh, you're a crazy conspiracy series, right? So whenever you talk to someone, especially someone on the right now uh, about these subjects and you go, oh, well, you know, Canadian truckers bring that up, they go, oh, yeah, you're right type of thing. Um, so yeah, that was like, I mean, when I was watching them announce that, I was like, did they sleep through a class in like, you know, tyrant school? Because they probably missed the part that was like, oh yeah, this is our last resort. Don't just throw this out willy nilly. Cause we don't want people to know they could do this. Um, because I, I mean, and that's one of the things where like, I don't agree with Udi on everything, but I'm happy in terms of like the voice he is in this space to where, um, you know, pushing for innovation in Bitcoin and like people building on it again, because at the end of the day, like I was talking with. Millie, like it's impossible to move fully to Bitcoin, right? But if we, especially people who were early in the space and came to the space because of state control monetary policy, um, you know, if we, you know, know that the fiat system will eventually fail and we may experience a hyperinflationary cycle, then at the end of the day, Bitcoin needs to be ready for that, right? If we can't switch over to that in time, if we're not efficient enough, if we can't, you know, handle the transactions and everything, then, you know, that's that's not just a bad thing for us, but all of humanity, right? So Satoshi gave us this gift. We got to make sure it's ready to be used um, when humanity needs it. So um, no, yeah, shout out to Udi on that. I think this is what everybody keeps meaning when I, I didn't really understand what they meant at first, but I think when people say all roads lead to Bitcoin, you can, you can kind of like outline a lot of different problems in the world or things we might view as problems as people who like care for other people and for the future of the human race. Um, Bitcoin just inherently kind of seems to solve a lot of those problems. And Swag, I saw your hand up. Was, was it up? Or Real quickly, it's no coincidence that the century of central banking, uh, you know, coincided with the century of world wars. So, um, no, yeah, that's another huge one that, you know, a lot of people in this space who count from there, um, you know, the Fed ability to print money and the U.S. government's ability to print money and fund the empire. Um, what do you call uh, that? That's one of the huge points that people um last on the Bitcoin because we know what their control of uh, what do you call monetary policy implies. I didn't know a lot about a lot of this stuff and I still don't know. I don't think enough in terms of like what the international uh, monetary fund is and how Congress like <laughs> takes money in from taxes and spends it on stuff. And then when they don't spend taking enough versus what they spend, like how that gets balanced. 
I didn't know any of this until the OM Bounties program came out. And I just, I was like, I wonder if I can write any of these articles. And I started reading into it. And I was like, one, I am not qualified to write on any of this stuff because I'm just now digesting what it is. But seeing 15 different people's takes, when, when you know, 15 people, I was thinking to myself, man, it seems a little weird to have 15 people put threads out about the IMF. Like, what's, is this really that valuable? And it is because hearing 15 people's individual manners of digesting that information gave me such a terrifyingly holistic viewpoint of what's going on with that and how even in the best case scenario how broken and teeter-tottery it is and it's like in its best state Knox, what's up i think um talking about monetary policy in reference to, to bitcoin is like such a huge conversation and something that i think is like intentionally obfuscated by by um you know uh, the, the powers that be um because you know, realistically, it's 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 something that you know you look at fiat currency and how it's managed, like and especially the U.S. dollar. Um, <laughs> it's something that is literally just kicking the can down the road again and again and again. And eventually, I, I mean, it's it's just going to blow up. Like you have to have a, a certain point where it is <laughs> something comes to fruition from it. Um, and you know, as it stands right now, with the, with the way that it's being managed or mismanaged, I should say, it's just Bitcoin is such a clear solution to that because no one has control over it. And but you know what? I mean, like no one has control over it in the sense that they can print more of it. Like it's there's 21 million. That's it. I mean, obviously, people like BlackRock are are seeing that. Okay, well, you know, monetary policy's fucked. <laughs> What's going to come next? Um, probably not gold because that's manipulated as well. Um, Bitcoin, that's what makes sense, right? So uh, you know, to be to be building uh, uh, here now when you know we, we can, I think speculate obviously on the future, but I think it's a pretty clear speculation, um, and 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 build upon this this product that has consensus and is the most decentralized thing in the entire world. I mean, I think that's something that's really exciting. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to, to keep educating people and keep talking about these things because there's a lot of people who just, they don't understand it. And it's not their fault. And like, hey, Donnie, you're even one person who was saying, I, I didn't understand it. And, and, and I think that just it comes from it being something that is not, uh, it's intentionally not taught. They don't want people asking questions. They don't want people saying, well, why, why is my, my chicken now $20 instead of $10 from last year? You know? It, it, it's i don't know there's uh, and i it's I, chicken know, it, going up the yeah, price of chicken's yeah. going up gosh darn it it's not the money going down Get yeah, it right, right. <laughs> yeah exactly you know so i i, I don't know uh, you, you know i think uh, we're, we're leveraged amazingly right now i think ordinals are going to are bringing a whole new use case to bitcoin on top of that and you know it, it, it's just we're 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 in a, a crazy space right now and networking with crazy people and, and be able to talk about this stuff at this point is just um i, I don't know I'm, I'm bullish guys what can i say <laughs> the more i hear about this the more i realized so this started out as every episode this happens i love that this happens because we start with a topic and we end up and not that this is this isn't like a wrap-up speech because we can do this for four hours as far as i'm concerned we're just going to trim it into a podcast at some point um and, and this is a really valuable discussion I think that when Maxis say that Bitcoin is money and stop drawing on it, you vandals, um, I think they their conception of what Bitcoin was was solving a specific problem, which happens to also be the problem we're talking about right now. 
But the conversation started around provenance and provenance referring to art and archaeology and history and past and future and all that. If all of these things are what Bitcoin solves, each one of them makes the entire network stronger and more viable, which means each one of the problems benefits from the solution of all the other problems. And that's something I don't think I quite put together until this very moment. Bad Brothers, what's up? No, yeah, and this is, you know, kind of part of the point of OMB as a whole, where, you know, ZK has talked about, like, you know, these were the ideas of early Bitcoin, and he wanted a project that, you know, out of all the NFT projects who aren't, that kind of spoke to those things, right? And, you know, to the monetary policy thing, I mean, monetary policy was something I was obsessed with in my early 20s and did a lot of uh, reading and research on. And, um, you know, monetary policy was pretty much out of the conversation of, you know, American life. Um, Probably prior to the Ron Paul movement in 2008, I mean, you know, before the Federal Reserve, it was much more in the conversations because you had um, debates around uh, gold, pure gold back currency or gold and silver back currency. So you had the free silver movement and stuff like that um, in the late 1800s. But um, yeah, it pretty much was out of the conversation until kind of Ron Paul brought it back to that. And a lot of other people started reading about these subjects and waking up to them. Um, so and now when you start to see this inflation and stuff, you know, people who didn't say anything about the Fed, you know, five years ago are now talking about it now, or at least, you know, it's on their radar. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, to that end, I mean, to give a kind of overall thing where, you know, you had the big debate in monetary policy was probably, you know, kind of around the 30s to 50s, where you had like the Keynesians. Um, and then now you pretty much have new Keynesians and modern monetary theorists because they don't even follow Keynesianism nowadays. But um, it's really that and, you know, Misesian uh, Austrian economics. And the key difference between those two is um, in Misesian economics, it's basically laissez-faire, you know, let the market decide. And in Keynesian economics, it, you know, introduces this idea that, you know, governments can actually, uh, you know, manipulate the economy and do things to make it better and, you know, solve uh, recessions and things like that, which uh, we've obviously seen is not the case. But, um, you know, the reason why one went out and the other didn't is because obviously governments tend to attract to the one that says, hey, you can take more power versus the one that say, oh, no, uh, don't take more power, give more power back to the people. So um, and yeah, Bitcoin, I mean, this is what's always been about. I always say, like, you look at the early Bitcoiners, Roger Burr, um, any of them. It, it's always been about the monetary policy. It's always been about the state. And, you know, again, to OMB and ZK's point and, you know, me, that's a frustration I had with this space in the last year where it was just like not a lot of people knew this stuff because it came into the space the last two years. And it's like, how do we, you know, start that conversation in here because this is what it's really all about. And um, I can't say enough about ZK actually implementing that. So, yeah. 100% agree, man. These are a lot of the I mean, first time I'm hearing a lot of these things because my background is not in finance at all. So thanks for bringing all that up. I have a lot of things to chew on, especially when I'm re-editing this and, and like stringing together this into some logical progression. Um, I can't wait to rehear that, honestly, because I'm so out of the loop with that stuff. Turk. What's up, dude? Hey, what's up, man? Uh, a few things. Uh, one is, uh, not that I'm a news reporter, but uh, there was just a, a bullish sentiment for uh, uh, OCM Dimension just sold for uh, 4 BTC, which is which is cool. You know, it's good news uh, for us. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, I'm not a floor price guy, but that means someone thinks there's a lot of value here. And I like, yeah, that, I mean, uh, as I humans, mean, uh, we like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and, uh, back in 2021, uh, on my hot wallet, didn't give a fuck. It was, uh, you know, I minted about seven uh, OCMs and I, we, nobody knew what the hell it was until a few weeks later when 
you saw posts of videos of them pro projecting um, images off of walls with like a, in, in four different cities. Uh, Santa Monica was one, Florida, Miami, I think was one, New York, I definitely think, and then maybe the Bay Area. And you were like, okay, this sounds like a real project. You know, they're using content and they're stealing, uh, you know, uh, stealing walls with projectors to, to show, show show their uh, OCMs. I keep saying OMBs, uh, OCMs and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that was just some news that just happened. Um, also, um, you know, back to Africa for a second. You know, I, I, I think that uh, it's, it's, it would be wise to note that um, they are, as a full uh, a general economy, they're doing a, a lot better than than most people would think they are. Uh, the, the adoption of, of crypto for, for many years, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the recent years, and also the adoption and, and, and output uh, of the new expansion of BRICS and stuff that's going to, you know, purportedly de devastate our dollar, uh, which is already being devastated, uh, which gives, you know, rise and 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 focus on on the the, more, the power of Bitcoin. And, you know, with the happening happening next year, um, you know, things going in half, the price going uh, up. Um, uh, I, I think that's important to note, too. But, yeah, Africa is no schlub at all um, in, in, in a general uh, sense. I think it's more positive than, than negative. Um, uh, and, and, Donnie, I have a restaurant joke for you, a real quick one uh, about chicken. Yeah, hit me. I've never heard. Yeah, one. yeah. I just thought it might be, you know, a good little interrupter. Um, a guy asked the chef, uh, how do you prepare the chicken? Uh, the chef goes easy. I just tell them all you're not going to make it. Um, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I if I knew how to use the soundboard, yes. <laughs> uh, good one. Horace walks into a bar. Bartender looks at him and says, "Why the long face?" Steve, what's up, man? Just following up on what Knox and Bad Brothers were saying about monetary policy. I mean, Bitcoin is the curveball that's being thrown at all the world's governments, right? So the U.S. dollar has been the world reserve currency for the past 80 plus years, ever since World War II. And we're seeing the changing of hands of world reserve currencies. Every, everyone in this world knows that the Chinese Yuan will be the next world reserve currency. It's set up like that. Now, we have never seen a point in our period where you have two types of currencies Right. Even when gold was being transitioned to fiat paper, uh, whatever you want to call it, fiat paper currencies, that was one type of a form of currency, gold switching to paper currency. Now you have Bitcoin being thrown in there where it's what and it's, it's getting so big that governments can't really do anything. Right. So what is exactly going to happen? We bring up wars. We bring up, you know, all types of different scenarios. And I know we keep talking about Africa as well. For me, Africa has bigger problems than just crypto itself. A lot of African countries are absolutely in, they, they are in debt to China. China owns a good amount of African countries. So if they don't pay up, what do you think is going to happen? Crypto is not going to save them at this point. Because, you know, when we're, when we're seeing the change of hands of so much money to a different nation, you're right. Wars will be started up. And I hit, now, I hate to be the one to be like, yo, you know, this and that, but it's scary in the sense that I don't want to see that. I, listen, none of us want to see that. But it is somewhat where it's somewhat in, in, inevitable just seeing what's actually happening around the world. So it's, it's interesting that we're witnessing history. We're seeing Bitcoin plus the change of hands of the next world reserve currency. Um, I don't so, know what's getting. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I pretty much wrapped up. Yeah, go on. Oh, I was, somebody was. I was having a conversation with someone on this space like a week ago about how 
people were proposing tail emissions because they were like, what about when Bitcoin runs out and tail emissions and what are we going to do? And I was like, in 2149, you're asking questions about 2149 right now. The map isn't going to look half of the world's going to be water by then. The U.S. is going to be Japan and Russia is going to be China. Like, what were you worried about tail emissions? Like, wait a minute, you know, like we can't even plan six months in advance. What are we doing thinking 150 years out? It's bananas. Uh, native then knocks then bad brothers, please. Native. Uh, yeah, about China, uh, they're not going to be the next world currency. Um, to me, BRICS is something that these people could have done at, at any time. And to do be doing it right now just seems very desperate to me. So I think China is probably lying about a lot of the economy. But that's my personal opinion. Um, I do think that Africa is possible to be used as a proxy war between you know, the BRICS and NATO. Um, but I see that more uh, likely happening in the the Eastern Asian Sea, um, where you there's just it's just factual that we've just set up military bases all along uh, the China coast and are preparing for uh, a naval war is what it looks like. So we may have you know a land proxy war maybe in Africa possibly, but I just see the the whatever war is going to happen playing out uh, as a naval war in the Eastern uh, Asian Sea. Um, I did want to say uh, one thing. To me, it's about as a as humanity, we have to come to a consensus on what money means, right? Because in this hyper-individualist society that we've created in Western culture, you know, uh, we place money above everything. And money is not, that's not what money's for. Money, money is a tool for us to use. And so I think it's important to start using, uh, you know, better words like um, trade and like understanding what uh, value is. And so um, I think that that is something that Bitcoin allows us to focus on uh, because it's decentralized in its nature and the technology that it's giving us. And so uh, it allows us to create um, those trade networks, create those associations of people and create a real organizational management layer for all of our resources that we have to share as humans and with the rest of this planet. Like, I think about a year or two ago, once my mother saw me getting into this and like not stopping being into it, she was like, so is cryptocurrency going to replace money? And I was like, cryptocurrency, just currency means operating token of the system. Currency doesn't mean money necessarily. When we refer to money, we're referring to the operating token of the global economy or a local economy of some sort, some kind of like governmental thing. And money is just the barter system with a battery pack attached to it. So we replace items with paper or shells or gold and the things change over time that we replace them with. And it stands to reason that we will replace it again at some point in general. And if we have our way or if the, the world has its way, it might be something that looks like or is Bitcoin. It can be anything. It's always temporary because <laughs> the earth will eventually be consumed by the sun in 4 billion years when it expands to you know include us. Um, so until then, we're always just trying to find the best solution. And everyone is always going to have some sort of ego power fight about land. And and it, like some people open a bank because they want to help people have access to things. And some other people open a bank because they want to own everything and dominate because that's how their brains are operating. You know, I think genetic diversity is necessary in society. And it's good that we have all these types of people because it's the reason we're still here today. 
you know, you need one in some number of people to be a psychopath and not mind killing people because you need the guy to defend the tribe. Um, you need someone who can't block out noise and is like always on edge and anxious because you need to know when a tiger's walking up from behind you. All of these things come across as disorders in modern society, but I think they're all vastly necessary to the future survival of our species, including being both liberal and conservative. If everyone did the same thing at the same time, we would either all survive or all die. And at this point, we wouldn't be here anymore because we're bound to make a wrong decision at some point. So I'm glad we're always arguing about stuff. I'm glad we're constantly surrounded by people who don't agree with us. And I think it's the only way we can continue to be who we are. That being said, Knox, then Bad Brothers, then Steve, please. That's a hard one to follow, Donnie. God damn. <laughs> Sorry, dude, I get all riled up. You get me like an hour and a half into these things and my brain just goes bananas. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, it's good, man. You know, that's the great thing about these spaces. You really have like, uh, you know, uh, so many fantastic minds and people to speak to about this stuff, this thing that we're passionate about and knowledgeable about. And you learn so much and, uh, you know, you just get all fired up. That's great. I love it too. But um, I, I will say that, um, uh, you know, I think just on the whole idea of using, uh, you know, Bitcoin instead of, um, you know, fiat currency. Reality is, is like, like you were just saying, Donnie, is that there, we have this, this underlying issue of, of any kind of like system that we could possibly create um, of humanity, because some people um, are, are trying to, uh, are in it for themselves. Some people are, are, you know, are creating banks so so they can dominate everything. Some people are doing it to to store things, like you were just saying. But ultimately, like when you have the people that are constantly trying to dominate everything, that's going to kind of ruin most concepts. I mean, this is the problem with like politics as well. Like you know, like you go right, left, middle, up, down, left, or right. It, it doesn't matter. It, at the center, you have someone that potentially could be corrupted because they are human. Um, and that's just it. But I think that's like the super bullish thing behind Bitcoin. It's trustless. It's not run by a human. It's not, no, there's no deciding factors without consensus, among, like true consensus among all sorts of humans. You can't fake election results. You can't, you, you can't say that there, there, there's, there's, you know, something else going on here or, uh, you know, have like crazy um, thing. Like we in Canada have first passed the post electoral system, which is just insane. Um, obviously, I don't mean to get political, but either way. But, you know, what it comes oh, We're talking to, about systems, man. It's not out of line. Okay, sure. Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that and that, you know, at its core, and even bringing it back to the title of the space, what it is is Bitcoin is provenance of money, right? It's it's provenance of some like a, a an asset that cannot be changed or or fooled or uh, faked or anything. It is there. It's transparent, and every trade, everything that happens is 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 tracked and is on a ledger. You know, so I, I think that that is the most important part about all of this, you know, provenance of money, you know, and obviously like, uh, you know, uh, using that to, to do things with with artwork and storytelling and, you know, everything that we're doing here as well. Like, you know, proof of assets, massive, 
And, you know, backs backs up that thesis completely. Yeah. If Bitcoin is a machine of time and it has its own provenance and we can rely heavily on that, then all other things can be measured against it as like a a, a bias-free ruler or a bias-free metric stick or meter stick or whatever, you know, whatever the hell. You know what I'm talking about. Bad Brothers, what's up? No, yeah, I mean, to Knox's point, um, you know, this was something Milton Friedman, who's a Chicago school economist, which is closer to the Austrian school, but um, I'm not going to go into the differences between them. Uh, but this was something he was talking about, I think it's early in the 70s, right, where it's like we have this Federal Reserve where we have these, you know, men in horrible uh, building deciding the price of money, which is, you know, ridiculous on its face. But, um, you know, he would talk to about how if, you know, the solution would be to have some type of computer, um, you know, designing monetary policy where humans are taken out of it. Right. And it's actually funny. Later in an interview in 1999, um, he actually kind of predicts Bitcoin where he goes into he's like, oh, the Internet's great. But the one thing we don't have is this reliable e-cash. Uh, so one person could trade with another without knowing who the other ones were. So, um, you know, he did have some foresight in that. But um, no. Yeah. I mean. Bitcoin is, you know, that thing. And, you know, like I said, the price of money, because that's what some people, you know, don't really know what interest rates are, where, you know, that's what interest rates are, the price of money, the idea of, okay, if we have a lot of capital, interest rates should be low, because um, what do you call, you know, we have a lot of money, it's free, you know, people are taking less of a price to um, lend out that money. But if we have uh, you know, short amount of cop capital because of recession or something, then interest rates, you know, should rise because uh, there's more demand for it. Right. So um, the idea that, you know, you have these people in this building just setting these instead of, you know, the market setting them um, is, is, you know, ridiculous. And then back to um, what some other people were saying, where it's like, I don't think the yuan is going to be the world reserve currency. I think basically what we're going to be seeing is just, um, you know, a lesson of the U.S. dollar being a world reserve currency and then these countries trading in their own currencies. Um, and now that does kind of, you know, break the system in a sense um, if it goes too far to where, you know, the reason we're the world reserve currency is because there's such a demand for our dollars. And that goes back to when we got off the gold standard, um, the Saudis agreed to ba uh, do all trades in oil with the dollar so that if you wanted oil, you need a dollar. So that increased the demand for dollars. Right. Um, but when you reduce that demand and you're, you have, 32 trillion in debt and, you know, the Fed doesn't know what they're doing. Um, that's when these systems kind of break down. And I, that doesn't mean it's going to be good for a Japan or any other country, because at the end of the day, they're all fiat monetary systems, right? So if the U.S. fails, pretty much all of them fail at that point, unless you have a gold-backed currency, which no one does. Um, so I don't think we see the yuan either. And this is something where, like I was saying earlier, Bitcoin needs to be ready for because I'm a big fan of Peter Schiff, but obviously he doesn't like Bitcoin. But, you know, me and him are pretty much in agreement with a lot of things up until the point where that system fails. And then people go, OK, what do we go to next, gold or do we go to Bitcoin? And when that decision is being made, he thinks it's gold and not Bitcoin. But, you know, like I was saying, Bitcoin needs to be ready so people have the option um, to go to that. And then um, on the war stuff, like I was saying with, um, what do you call, you know, world wars and fiat currency that coinciding where 
Um, there's this misconception that war is good for the economy. And basically the only example people point to is like World War II, um, which is a total falsehood because um, they point to numbers in, you know, during the war where it's like, oh, unemployment and stuff is going down where it's like, oh, but you just drafted a million people and we're rationing uh, metal and food. That doesn't sound like a good economy to me. Bullet production went up. Exactly. Yeah, bullet factories are now. Right. And then after that, the total industrial base of Europe was destroyed. So that's when we actually got out of the Great Depression. I mean, you can look at quotes from FDR's economic advisor, I think at 39, where he's saying, yeah, we're doing all this stuff, but it's not working. Um, and it was really only, you know, how we covered it up and then that destruction that led to it. So um, the the, idea, the reason we could do all these wars is because we had the world reserve currency, right? So um, the, the reality is wars are expensive. It reduces liberty at home. And people get very tired of it very quickly if you can't sustain it through a fiat monetary system. I mean, our own revolution was kicked off due to this because you had the French and Indian War and then the British implementing these taxes onto us and the people revolting, right? So um, this idea... I would just say to inverse that. Go ahead. I would just say to inverse... I would just say to inverse... Sorry, I want to let you continue. But no, I would no, just no. Inverse go ahead. That go ahead. One, that, I would just inverse that one statement where you said that um, uh, the, you know, where the... <clears throat> we're able to go to war because we're the world currency. No, we're we're the world we're the world currency because we've went to war and established ourselves as the dominant nation. But please we go keep ahead. Winning. Please continue. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I mean, uh, that's definitely part. I mean, to to your point, part of the reason we were able to negotiate with that was when France called us out in our shit, where they were like, "Hey, you're printing all this money to go into Vietnam. I don't think you have the gold to back this up." And then Nixon took us off the gold standard. Uh, part of the reason that was because Europe gave us all their gold uh, during World War Two. Because, um, you know, they wanted it here for safekeeping. So, um, no, yeah, to your point. But then I, I would say it's kind of, you know, it's both where it's just like because of that, we were able to be the world reserve currency and we are able to continue to be doing those things because we are the world reserve currency. The chicken and egg. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> the chicken is inside of the egg that comes out of the chicken. Also, nana, nana, boo, boo. You say we don't have enough gold. Well, we don't want to use gold. Anyway. Exactly. So mm-hmm. suck on that, we say as Americans. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interject. But I mean, um, yeah, I'll just wrap it up here just saying like, you know, um, this idea that, you know, you pull back and like Russia and China are going to invade every country and all do that. It's like, again, wars aren't good for the economy. Um, people get fed up with wars very quickly. And um, uh, that's why a lot of people, you know, in, in the Bitcoin movement early on who were also anti-war were like so, you know, bullish on Bitcoin because they could see. Um, you know, when governments don't have the ability to print money and, uh, you know, going back to the British example, that's what they did during, um, you know, the French and Indian War, what they had to pay back. Um, then, you know, what do you call? Then they can't do these wars. So, um, yeah, no, that's why, uh, you know, Bitcoin is the shit. Bitcoin wins again. It all leads road back to this argument. I would say the next two people, uh, Steve, then Nomi, and then we can start to wrap it up. There's no huge rush, but I am in uh, Austin for a conference, and I should probably go pretend I'm actually here instead of being on the Internet as much as I'd rather be here. But I wanted to make a point that I heard that, and I wasn't there for this. I didn't watch it happen. That India made their first payment for oil. I think it was India, not in the U.S. dollar. And I think this is the first time it's happened since it has been the petrodollar. And it was in it was in either the Chinese yuan or the rupee. I don't remember which one it was, but either way, it doesn't matter. If that is starting to happen, then the change is beginning to uh, take foot. 
And if that means the fiat crash globally, because if you know the U.S. dollar doesn't exist, then all the rest of them kind of fall because it's this like big pyramid full of things that just coexist, right? It it always seems strange to me that there could be a crash in something that hasn't changed in any other manner than the way that we represent it, which is weird, right? So like during the pandemic, when all the restaurants in the United States shut down. Um, there were millions of unemployed people who were on the unemployment system check, right? We were all just getting like 600 to to $1,000 a week uh, for sitting around doing nothing. And everybody keep being like, the economy is going to crash. It's going to destroy everything. And I'm like, I get the supply chain thing. I get that Americans eat out a lot and that that now puts a burden on grocery stores and other supply chain units that like sort of doesn't make sense and destabilizes things a little bit. But if you, Swank Toshi, go out to dinner and you hand me $100 for bar and bar and food goods and then i take that hundred dollars and i put give that to another restaurant and then the restaurant gives it to another restaurant and then it eventually goes to a grocery store or rent or something like that if you simply remove me from that equation the net product doesn't change nothing has actually happened it just means that the hundred dollars didn't stop at me in between its other million stops on a journey so i've always wondered and there's we're not going to find an answer to this today i don't think anyway and i'm not even sure that it's reasonable to talk about it but it's always bothered me that if the economy exists because of the constant motion of money does the economy even exist and is it worth saving it's just the same argument when people are like you can't inscribe on bitcoin because it's going to ruin the system and i go well was the system strong enough to withstand the things we wanted to if that is what can bring it down and should it all just fall and break so we can rebuild it as it is you know, I just uh, I wanted to bring that up because I think it's an annoying concept. It's always bothered me. I mean, we have these yeah, I would just yeah. slightly push back on that to where um, the reason why the economy didn't collapse wasn't because, um, you know, kind of it was more because, you know, we printed five trillion dollars. Right. Um, by all accounts, you know, if you told people what was going to happen uh, during covid, would you say the economy crash would be like, oh, yeah, 100 percent. You know, no one's working. No one's doing anything. Right. Um, but because we printed all this money and did all that, then they were able to, you know, gloss over that. But then obviously we're living with the inflation and everything else like that. So, um, yeah, that, I, would I guess that. the point the point I was trying to make was only that if someone usually buys food from me, but instead and, and then I buy food from the grocery store. If they just go to the grocery store and that $100 doesn't stop at me this time, what has actually changed about reality? And why does that all of a sudden exclude me from getting resources? It just seemed like a one of those like non-issue issues that we like to make into an issue. Like it's not like <laughs> it's not like food doesn't get produced now. I was a restaurant worker. I don't actually do anything. I don't do anything that needs to be done. I do things people want to be done. But now that this class of people doesn't provide that service, no more or less money is moving around except that we printed a bunch of money. It doesn't really change the course of anything that I was removed from it. Printing the money definitely changed the course of things. But removing me from the system as a restaurant employee, and I'm not saying that what I do isn't valuable. I'm saying it didn't change the economic output or input of anything, except that maybe there was one less taxable stop on the journey. So it just, it seemed like one of those weird, uh, just mistaken, what is it? What do we call it? A sacred cow in boards facilitation work? The sacred cow is the thing that's always been the case that we no longer question because it just is like being able to breathe. Bureaucracy, bureaucracy is, is a sacred cow in a way. Yeah, it's like it, we have to breathe to survive and we can suffocate. We don't even acknowledge that as a problem because we don't acknowledge that we could potentially solve it. And I feel like the economy with a capital T-H-E is one of those things that like it's just built on stilts and on the side of a sand mountain 
that needs to fall so we can figure out what the mountain is and how to get back to it. So, well, I would just anyway. That's my I would also kind of push on. back on the um, circular flow type of thing because it kind of goes back. Not that you were saying this exactly, but just to do the demonstration, uh, the broken window fallacy, where it's like if I throw, you know, if I throw a rock into someone's window, right? People go, "Oh, that's good for the economy because." That guy has to buy a piece of glass. The glass man needs to make the glass. And then at that point, um, you know, what do you call, you know, money moves to the economy. Right. But uh, one thing me just pointed out is, you know, this goes to the uh, what do you call How do you put it? It's um, the 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 unseen, the seen, the unseen. I can't believe I'm forgetting how he put it. But anyway, it's like what you don't see is that guy took that money and then bought shoes with it instead of paying you for glass. Right. And then that helps that guy build as well. So at the end of the day, it's kind of like. Um, what do you call it? when we think of the economy, like they have this idea that the economy, the money moving in it, but it's really about wealth creation where, um, you know, with the accumulation of capital and the accumulation of wealth that, you know, in turn makes us a wealthier society and grows the economy. It's not necessarily just the money moving through because similar to the war thing, you know, when you produce bullets, um, you know, sure, that shows good on some economic numbers, employment, this and that, but you're not producing anything anyone actually wants um, or building wealth, right? All you're doing is producing things that destroy. So, um, you know, literally killing children, literally killing children for money. Yeah, and exactly. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't help anyone, but the, you know, war people, but it, you know, if, if those people, like when people go, oh, like, oh, NASA is so great because you get all these inventions and, you know, it, you know, for every dollar we put in, we get $5 or whatever. What you're not doing is you're not seeing, oh, what would all those smart, talented people be doing if they weren't doing that? Would they be developing a cure for cancer? Would they be uh, doing some other technology, right? So it's the seen versus the unseen um, that a lot of people miss when talking about economics because they only see the direct effect of a policy. They don't see what would have happened without that um, with people making their own decisions. And it goes back to, do you design an economy or do you let people make their own decisions in the market? the work and what's better the latter because it gives people what they actually want you know what they desire in the market and again we can reference whether or not truth is being uncovered or fabricated by people and how to go about this is our favorite question damn we could do this for hours more steve can you follow that followed by <laughs> and then Doge oh and man we're gonna shut it <laughs> Uh, so I was like trying to take notes to rebuttals everyone's arguments, but at this point, I'm going to wrap it up. <laughs> I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, listen, I'm not going to argue with anyone about whether the UN will be the next world currency or not, because there's professional economists who do it every single day, right? So who are we to be arguing about that? Um, what I do want to say is, you know, if the US wants to grasp on that title of having the world's reserve currency and being the world world's reserve currency, it's going to be tough. And as 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 an American, listen, uh, I'm assuming bad brother and the other person ate Nave V. You guys are you guys live in the states. You guys are American as well. Sure, yeah, of native. course we native. Yeah, my my bad. Of course, yo, I want a stronger dollar. Yeah, of, <laughs> course I want the US. of course, yo, yo, right? Like so. You know, I, I say all that to say this. Oh, oh, before I forget. So Brickus, I know you were saying Brickus was someone new. It's desperate. But that's been they've been around for over two decades now. Like that term Brickus, I'm not sure if you guys actually know, but that was termed by some economists saying these group of countries are going to dominate the world's economies in X amount of years. So that's where that term actually co comes from. And they've been around for, again, two decades at this point. Right. So it's not new. Um 
Man, I, honestly, I have all these notes that I wrote on my notepad. I don't know what else to say, but yeah. Thanks, Donnie. <laughs> yeah, this dude, this got very <laughs> real, not real quick. It's been over two hours. So I guess it took okay. a while to get all this tangled up. Uh, but this, I, okay, whenever this is done, whenever we're past the 15th episode, which by the way, I'm really excited about the 15th episode is me interviewing my mother and wife about everything we talked here or everything we talked about here to see what they understood and what they didn't and what sort of like glossary of terms we use daily that is just confusing to normal people. Um, I'm super pumped about that, but when that's done, I'm going to have to find a new way to do this kind of thing. And maybe I'll just come up with another 15 pieces of something to, to run. Cause I don't know if I can just run a, a space every day that like doesn't have an initial question. I'll figure it out though, because I think this is really valuable stuff to do and I don't want to stop doing it necessarily. Nomi, welcome. Thank you so much, Donny. Such an amazing space. You know, I'm learning just from every speaker and you know, there are so many problems. I read the book uh, that's called um, State Nations. And th this book is like basically saying how can we build like digital world and then implement it into the physical one. So idea is really like creating our own system uh, digitally and like connect network states. It's called the network state. Um, connect those network states around the world and then when those states are connected then it's time to move physical and like buy properties and then establish like some physical presence so it's like a new concept of creating you know new government system uh, as a concept it's really interesting for me to learn because i can kind of see like partly as a future i'm not sure that our governments would accept that <laughs> but at least we can try right and um especially with the bitcoin super happy like as an artist moving to you know like a blockchain that has some privacy solutions because for me like establishing financial system is not just about like creating um recording on the blockchain because like as you saw different from different um um like for example in canada when it was a protest like the government just came to the person and took the funds um despite that they were sent by uh, Bitcoiners to the Bitcoiners because they knew who the person was. So that's that's really like, you know, the <laughs> like for me, it's really number one thing to really uh, separate the digital uh, identity with the physical one. So that way I can create really a financial system that would be really like separate from my fiat system and that's like probably number one goal and that's why i'm like really learning and diving deep into like what the private solutions are because for me that's like a combination of privacy plus security give me the opportunity really to move forward from fiat and uh yeah super happy to you know ordinal establishment this year so that uh, I can really create through my art because as an artist, I was looking into solutions, you know, I was really um, disappointed with the system that we have in the art world right now. And finally, right now, like with the Bitcoin, I can finally see the light and that inspires me to really move forward, learn about technology, learn about privacy more and then establish my like digital presence as an artist and my like separate financial system that would be on the bitcoin so super happy about it and donny would love to share more conversations because it's it's exciting how we can like you know like build together move together as a community and find those solutions um like in, in between those conversations 
as a population of any size on any part of the planet, we will things into existence, not by voting in ballot boxes for elected officials who we hope will do the things that we like or that benefit the masses or the people that we are voting on behalf of. We vote by acting, by doing things, by spending money where we think money is best spent and by dedicating time and energy and existence to the systems that we think will do the best. And if everybody keeps doing what we're doing, then that means that this system is the best and it's wielded into existence. And then we will be in the case of adoption somehow. I don't think adoption is something we can push for. I think we can just continue to do what we're doing. And it just happens that way. Doshkorn, welcome up. How do you do? I'm from India. And uh, we've seen a considerable change in the way things work here. So what's happening lately is uh, India is slowly transforming into a digital world, right? And um, we have more people like in villages, like where people live in huts, use their mobile phones and they do UPI transactions. And we, I think, are now number one in the world in terms of using UPI transactions. But if you look at the currency value, of India, right? One Dodge coin, I mean, that that is just for a reference, correct? Is equal to about five rupees. I mean, that kind of boggles my head saying, we are almost the, you know, largest population in the world and we've been just downgraded to a meme coin. Now, uh, that kind of doesn't sit well with me, even though I have a fair share of Dodge coin with me and everything. And regarding the elections part, right? You guys are all from the developed countries and we are not. And I don't see that we'll be there as a developed nation in the coming future. Maybe it'll take us about 20, 25 years. But within this time span, I'm guessing a lot of uh, developing countries are going to take over the world. And it's going to drain out all the developed countries' currencies digital you know currencies or fiat currencies are gonna just fall and crumble is what i see i I really like to hear what are your thoughts on this from my standpoint as a person who has done a very small amount of research in terms of how experts speak on this topic I don't think that the situation you're in is not the same situation everyone else is in in some way. We're all in different stages of it and have different leverage points, meaning that the U.S. dollar for now is doing fine. But if there there were 1.2 trillion U.S. dollars in circulation in 2012 or 13 and then 1.8 in circulation in 2018, that's before the pandemic megaprint of 40 percent dilution. Um, We're all facing this same challenge, which puts us uniquely together in this room that we're talking in right now about solutions to the same problems, even if we're at different stages of those problems. And that's kind of like, I don't mean to brush past this and close the space sort of, but that was the point of the whole space or the whole podcast series, really. This space was supposed to be on provenance, but it turns out that when you talk about provenance, you have to include Bitcoin. And when you include Bitcoin, you have to talk about everything else that Bitcoin provides and why it's so great at dedicating its own provenance or maybe being the measuring stick stick up against which we hold everything else, whether it's art or currency. This seems to be a great answer to that question or to that problem that we have. And I don't know what's going to happen in the coming years or how long it's going to take for us to enter some kind of utopia, or even if we can do that. I think that 
the more people ask this question, the more discussions we have about it, more people will inherently begin to use the systems they believe in the most. And as long as the information that they're getting is correct and whole, then we'll end up doing the thing that is actually best for us as a people. Just one more little reference that I want to put forward and you know, get your opinion on that. So uh, China kind of uh, lends a lot of money to the US and all the other world, right? And it's a, let's not get into politics, but it's a far left uh, country, correct? And we are the, we are the world's uh, only democracy. That's, I don't know, we kind of praise it here, but I don't see it going anywhere. Because most of the Bitcoin is with the corrupt politicians that we, you know, elect in power here. Um, and our uh, ruling party is the world's richest political party. Uh, <laughs> so the utopia needs to come from people here. And uh, the people are getting managed by the press uh, who are also invested in the crypto and who also own billions of dollars in crypto. The only response I would have to that is that while Bitcoin doesn't solve the issue of the people who have a lot still having a lot, it may solve the issue of them not being able to rig the deck because they control the monetary system itself. Yeah, that's, I um, that, Bitcoin can avoid that I feel like is a huge misconception I hear from some people, especially new people in the space, when they think about crypto, where it's like supposed to be this idea that we take you know, from the rich and, you know, everybody is democratized the money or whatever. Um, that That's not the idea of it. I mean, the idea and, you know, you could go and read this short book by uh, 18th century economist, um, French economist, Frederick Bastia, called The Law, where he kind of lays out where, you know, there's basically two ways to acquire money in the world. One is, you know, morally appropriate. One isn't. One way is through like voluntary exchange, producing goods that people want and getting money for it. And the other way, it's a political means. Uh, that's what we call the economic means. The other way, it's a political means. Bitcoin aims, in that sense, aims to eliminate the political means where you have the Fed and all these other, you know, organizations that, you know, can use their power over the currency to enrich themselves um, at the, you know, expense of everybody else versus, um, what do you call having a free system where sure there are people who are going to be richer and people who are going to be poorer, but the richer people should be richer because people voluntarily gave them their money because they uh, provided a service or a product that they, you know, desired greater than that money. Right. Versus, you know, manipulating it through a governmental means at e-force. So, um, yeah. Just a welcome to Isabel who just joined on stage from the same city that I am currently standing in. And I wanted to catch you up. We're just about to close it down because it's been about two and a half hours and this is usually supposed to be 60 to 90 minutes, something like that. And I want to spend a little more time in Austin and maybe even meet up with you later on if you're amenable to that. But as a short and sweet version of what's happened here, we started out talking about provenance as pertains to art and archaeology and how Bitcoin solves those problems. Then it turned into a discussion about Bitcoin being the time chain and having its own provenance of its own items and how that strengthens the basically the double spend solution and what sort of implications that has for the global economy. It doesn't have to be about that. You're welcome to say anything you'd like. How do you do? It sounds like you guys are wrapping up, so I won't uh, take up too much time. But yeah, absolutely. I think uh, um, some folks are making some really good points. Like even if a bunch of people have a ton of Bitcoin, whatever is sort of left over, right, ultimately is going to be better. Like no matter how much Bitcoin you have, you're always going to 
it will always benefit you basically, no matter how much Bitcoin other people have, quote unquote, relative to you, because those people who have more Bitcoin can't steal more Bitcoin from you in the future, which is what our current fiat monetary system does, right? Like every time rich people want to debase your currency right now, they basically can, or like the Fed can, and God knows that they're like sort of working for their rich banking friends, right? Um, that's not possible with Bitcoin, right? So, you know, even if you started with a really small amount of Bitcoin, like at least, you know, your currency is not going to be debased. It's the Cantillion effect, or if I'm pronouncing that correctly, where if if we move over to Bitcoin, let's say everybody starts using Bitcoin and all fiat currency goes away and all other cryptocurrencies go away, it's only Bitcoin. No one can make more Bitcoin and then spend it before the market realizes that the, the supply has been inflated. Um, so that alone, even though it doesn't distribute wealth evenly and make this like Star Trek utopia, um, it's a step closer to that thing, if that thing is actually what we're going for in the end, which I am not here to say. I'm not here to say what the goal is. I'm just here to ask questions about what the process is like. And from what I've gathered this time, it seems as though every piece, it's contrary to the maxi theory, where they're like, stop writing on my money and don't use it for nothing because you're ruining it. I think every single thing that we can utilize Bitcoin to strengthen and do better with will strengthen every other thing that we can utilize Bitcoin for. Because as the network gains power, it gains security. And each one of those things gets stronger with you to the other. And Donnie, I would just go ahead and I'm going to reject the idea that that um, that maxis don't like ordinals. That's like completely bullshit. I think that that's sort of like a culture war that's been sort of created amongst both maxis and people in the and people in the <laughs> ordinal. Yeah, and people in the ordinals. There are certain people in the ordinals community that are benefiting from that narrative and getting engagement from that narrative. And I, I actually think we should be taking a step to move away from that narrative. Like, that's not actually true. Like, there are plenty. Some of the most powerful Bitcoin maximalists and the most influential Bitcoin maximalists are, like, outspoken advocates in favor of the existence of ordinals. They say that all of the problems caused by ordinals are champion problems that are essentially the same problems that we would have in, you know, a hyper-Bitcoinized world. So, yeah. So, um, I'm going to start a campaign, which is, like, let's stop saying the maxis hate ordinals because that's actually not true. Deal. I have laser eyes in my profile picture, as do you. I think I'm a newly realized Bitcoin maxi myself, and I love ordinals, and I support almost anything anyone wants to use Bitcoin for because, as I said earlier, I think anything we do with it strengthens everything else we do with it to some degree, or at least yeah. exposes problems, and that we can then yeah. plug up the ship before we set off across the ocean. That being said, if nobody has any closing notes, sorry to shut it down as soon as you step up, Isabel. Thank you so much for popping in. But this has been an episode of Don't Say NFT, Episode 9 on Provenance. Thank you to Crypto Sapiens for producing and recording and all that stuff. Once again, my name is Donnie Clutterbuck, and this has been Don't Say NFT. Thanks so much, everybody, and I'll see you in the future. This has been another episode of Don't Say NFT, the show where we usually don't say NFT. Thanks again to Crypto Sapiens, Bankless Dow. Have a great day, everybody.